0: lovely maple grove minnesota and sixfootmama.com this is still growing with jennifer ebling still growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, I want to start out by welcoming new listeners to the podcast. So if this is your first time listening to the show, a special welcome to you. And I also want to welcome new members to our listener community in Facebook. It's actually in a private group that I've created for listeners of the show, and you can find it by searching Still Growing Podcast Group when you're in Facebook. Just go up to the search bar and then enter that term in, Still Growing Podcast Group, and our group will pop right up. And new members this week include Debbie Murai, Marsha Chapman, Denise Sahajda, Jill Berenger, Kevin Narizni, Maggie Braun, Joe Rizzi of New York. Welcome, Joe. Jill Turetsky-Malinger from Austin, Texas. Randy Harrington. Chris Chiapa. Mike Sullivan from Kansas. I have a great friend named Mike Sullivan, so love that name. Kathy Lejoy Hassenjager, Deb Johnson, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, near my hometown of Worthington. Christine Colley. Danielle Smith-Ernst. Steve Rupert. Karen Tandy out of Des Moines, Vicki Van Blaricum, and Lisa Rodberg in New Jersey. Welcome, you guys. Well, you might be wondering, why would I want to join the Still Growing podcast group on Facebook, the listener community? I'm going to tell you why. There's a couple of really key reasons, I think, that make it a great experience for you. First, the listener community is a place for guests of the show and listeners of the show to interact. So if you are passionate about an episode that you've listened to and you're looking to get direct contact with a guest that's been on the show, that's the place you can do that. You can ask your questions. In fact, today's guest, Megan Kane, answered a listener's question about her garden. And then that question turned into an entire blog post full of information for the listener about how to plan her 2017 garden. So just spectacular opportunities there to interact with guests that are on the show. And then just to give you a quick idea of some of the past guests that are in the group right now. We have Jen McGinnis of Frau Zinni, the blog Frau Zinni, Katie Dubau of Garden Media Group with the 2017 Garden Trends Report. Peggy Ann Montgomery was just on the show. She's with American Beauty Native Plants. She's in the group. Pam Pennick, the author of The Water Saving Garden, fantastic book. And Anna Thomas, the author of Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore, just to name a few. Now, one of the other great reasons to join the group is that it's a closed group. It's a private group. And there are two things that distinguish a closed or a private group from the other public groups that you can join very easily on Facebook. The first is that you have to request to join. So you do have to go to the search bar in Facebook and then type in the words still growing podcast group. And it's going to look like a closed group, which it is. So you're going to have to Request to join anyway. And then once that I verify you're not a robot or a spammer, you're welcomed into the group. And by doing this, we eliminate a lot of the annoying comments or maybe inappropriate things that you might see from time to time in a group. It won't happen in the still growing podcast group in our listener community. The other nice feature of being a private or closed group is that. Oftentimes, I get asked, who can see what members post in the group? And the answer to that is only other members of the group. So, when you share something in a public group on Facebook, everyone can see it. The the public can see that post. But when you share it in the private Facebook group for the listener community for this show, it's only visible to the other members of the group. So, that's another nice benefit. You know, the group is also the only place that I go to pick winners for any giveaways from my guests or sponsors, and last week when Joel Carson was on the show, he generously offered to give away six copies of his book called Straw Bale Gardens, and the winners are Amy Fairbanks von Aachen, Kelly Armstrong Smith, Bob Lutz, Barb O'Brien, Rachel Diedrich, and Kathy Brown. So congratulations, you guys. I'm going to have you private message me with your contact information. So include your email and your address, and I'll have Joel send those books to you. So congratulations again. All right, well, before I get into the Garden News Roundup, I wanted to share with you something that I announced in the Facebook group this week. And that is that I'm starting a listener advisory board for the Still Growing podcast. So, the listener advisory board is going to be made up of listeners of the show. And this is a volunteer position, it's a four month commitment. So, there'll be three terms throughout the year. And during that four-month period of time, I will meet via video chat with four to six listeners, and we will talk about things like upcoming guests... The show strategy for the year, things like building listenerships, uh, social media presence, that type of thing. And I'm really looking to get input from you as listeners about the direction the show is going, because I want the show to be very listener driven. So if you're especially curious about what happens behind the scenes with a podcast like Still Growing, this would be a fun opportunity. The commitment involves no more than an hour of your time each week, so I'm hoping it'll be less than that, but that kind of gives you guys a little bit of an idea of the time involved. And lab members, people who are part of this listener advisory board, will automatically receive a membership to the March and May Still Growing Book Club. And they'll also be recognized at the end of every episode. So if that's something you're interested in, that would be another reason to join the Facebook group. Okay. Well, it's time for the Garden News Roundup, and these are the things that flashed across my computer screen over the past week that I've curated for listeners of the show, and I share all of this in the Still Growing podcast group and Facebook. So if you hear something you're interested in, there's no need to take notes because all of it gets shared in the Still Growing podcast group on Facebook. In the first spot, there was a wonderful post that Deborah Madison had shared about her favorite vegetable, and I think it's also very underappreciated, and that's celeriac or celery root. And Deborah wrote, that celeriac had been on her mind. She said, It's such a good vegetable, and what is really great about it is that it seems to be a natural for truffles or truffle salt if you're not likely to have one of those costly tubers in hand. A potato celeriac root mash is featured in My Kitchen. That's her new cookbook. And it's one of my favorite ways to enjoy this vegetable. Since the book isn't coming out until late March, you may not want to use that recipe until next fall and winter, since by spring, we're all wanting something much greener and new. But trust me, celeriac is a great vegetable. When shopping, choose the heavier ones. The lighter ones are likely to be puffy or hollow inside. And she shared this gorgeous picture that was taken by Erin Scott. So really, really great. And it's something that people were commenting on. In fact, one of the members in the Still Growing podcast group said that she grows it every year, but she's never seen it as a seedling in nurseries. So she grows it from seed. And she she says that it has a long growing season. She starts it in January and then sets it out in May and harvests it in November. So if you grow celeriac, head on over to the group and let me know your thoughts on celeriac or salary root. And I'll just offer a few words about this vegetable. First of all, it's a big vegetable root. It's very delicious. So it's worth knowing how to get into it. And I think about cutting into a celeriac in the same way I think about a pineapple. So I cut off the top, I cut off the bottom, and then I start slicing off the sides because the outside of this root is very rough. And then you just chop up the inside into little chunks. And from there, you can roast it, you can saute it, you can puree it, or mash it. And in the Facebook group this week, I shared a really nice video, very nicely done from Food Wishes that I found on YouTube for how to make a celeriac puree, and it's really great. It offers a lot of helpful tips, and it's very concise. In sustainability this week, I shared two posts that had caught my attention. The first one is called Growing Agrihoods, the Next Frontier in Urban Revitalization. And this one features a two-acre farm in Detroit's northern neighborhood that offers free food, green space, and hope to the community and it's right smack dab in the middle of the neighborhood. The images in this particular post are really striking, very captivating. It's a gorgeous space and the person who's behind it with the Michigan Urban Farming Initiative is trying to make Agrihoods a vital part of bringing back Detroit and he'd like to see them all across America. And then there was also another great post about how greenhouses and the demand for greenhouses is increasing exponentially. So from 2007 to 2012 alone, when the last farm census was done, production of vegetables in greenhouse structures increased from... 1,400 acres to about 2,200 acres, and that's an over 60% increase in just five years. So greenhouses are hot, pardon the pun. That was actually pretty good. All right, in continuing ed, I had two things that I'd found for you guys. The first one is a really fun post that Kathy Gents had shared on her blog. And she called it plants to die for. And so you might have noticed that when you're out gardening, that you get different stains on your garden apron or your clothing, so yellow stains from working with maybe yellow plant material or purple stains or certainly grass stains we can all identify with. But Kathy says that one of the hottest new gardening trends is cultivating plants for creating natural fabric dyes. It's another aspect of organic, authentic living. So we grow our own food and herbs, and now you might want to consider creating natural plant dyes as part of the next step in the DIY revolution. And Kathy goes on to say that it's maybe pretty easy for most gardeners to get started because there are some common dye plants that are fairly easy to grow, and we probably have some of them in our gardens, including goldenrod or lavender, onions, oregano, just to name a few. So that was a fun post in the Continuing Ed segment. In the DIY area, there were two posts that caught my attention. The first was from the folks at Remodelista or Gardenista, and they went through a New York City flower market and showed how they pick the flowers that they choose to make bouquets. And then they they walk you through all of their hottest and best little tips to do that with a budget of $200. So check that out, that was very inspirational. And then there was this crazy trend alert that Gardenista shared and it's designer John Darian's Faded Flowers. And so this designer John Darian is known as the king of patina and he showed how to use flowers that are way past their prime. Some of them are beyond dead. And he's decorating with them with basically dried flowers. And the one that just was so incredibly striking to me were these dried hosta leaves that he had displayed on this antique dresser. And it said in the caption, Dried hosta leaves on a dresser take on a gracefully papery texture. John enjoys how they become translucent with age, but still have depth. And I have to say, I would have never considered using dried hosta leaves before seeing this particular image, so pretty fantastic. The plant spotlight this week is from a blog called Chinese Medicine for a Restless World, and it's gankow.net. And they wrote a very in-depth article about ginseng, which is the most famous herb in the Chinese pharmacopoeia. Ginseng translates into man root, and man in this case isn't gender specific. It just basically means human root, because the root resembles a human or a person, if you've ever looked at it. So it's a very comprehensive look at this powerful ancient herb. In horticulture news, there were a number of posts that made it in this week. The first was shared by the BBC. And it is this post about how there were more corpse flowers that bloomed in 2016 than had bloomed in any other year, and nobody knows why. So the corpse flower is that flower that has that huge bloom that doesn't smell so great, which is why it has the term corpse corpse flower as its name, and these flowers take 10 years to build up enough energy to bloom, but mysteriously, dozens of them bloomed within weeks of each other in 2016. And again, this is a fun article that was shared by the BBC digging into why this particular phenomenon happened in 2016. And then in the last week in January, there was a super cool map of the United States that was shared by Earth Observatory through NASA at their website. And what it shows is a distribution of the forested area in the United States. So if you think you have a handle on where forests are in the U.S., this map will either confirm or deny that. But I had never seen a distribution map like this showing that. And it just goes to show how So much of the middle section of the country is completely deforested with the most dense forests happening along the West Coast, although there's definitely just on a pure mass scale standpoint, more forests all along the East Coast. Mother Earth News shared a post that they were recycling from March 13th, 2013. It's a classic, and it's all about heirloom carrot varieties, and it features the work of William Woyes Weaver. He wrote the book called Heirloom Vegetable Gardening, and it's the culmination of some 30 years of firsthand knowledge of growing, tasting, and cooking with heirloom vegetables by Weaver. He's a staunch supporter of organic gardening and what they did in this particular post is share an excerpt from his chapter simply called Carrots. Now, you can buy the brand new ebook of Weaver's Gardening Classic in the Mother Earth News Store. And I just clicked on it. You can get the ebook on DVD, and it's $19.99. So for 20 bucks, you can get the ebook on DVD. Well, today is February 3rd at the time I'm recording this. And NPR just shared a very interesting article called Maybe Money Does Grow on Trees After All. And the whole point of this article was to share the work that had been done in Africa to start understanding the growing habits Of African farmers. And they said that they felt that they had a secret economic weapon and that was trees. And what they started to discover just by taking the time to survey African farmers is that households in several African countries grow more trees than scientists had previously realized. And that those trees account for an average 17%, so nearly a fifth of a farm's income. It's a very interesting article. Last week, I started this segment, and it's called the Dream Guest Segment. And it's for when I run across an article or a post that just strikes a chord with me. And I feel the need to reach out to the people involved with this story to see if they'd be willing to come on the show. And so last week, I reached out to this wonderful new author named Josh Volk, And he was shown in this image preparing CSA boxes at his farm in Portland, Oregon. Josh is the owner of Slow Hand Farm, and he's written a new book called Compact Farms that was just released this week. And what I love about what Josh is doing is he highlights 15 different farms across the country, all of which are located on no more than five acres. And then he features the hardworking people that run those farms. Josh details how each farm grows and sells its products, even offering advice to aspiring farmers who are interested in taking up the trade themselves. And through telling their stories, Josh pushes back against the get big or get out narrative, making a strong case for how smaller farms can and do contribute to our nation and the planet's health and livelihood. So I've reached out to Josh, And I'm hoping he comes on the show. And I'm picking this book for the Still Growing March Book Club. And I'll start sharing details about that next week. In Science this week, I shared an article that was written by the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. And the title of the article is called Dormant Orchids Need Fungi to Rise Again. And it's by Kristen Minogue. And it starts out by saying this. If you're a plant... When life above ground turns harsh, you have few options. Some orchids respond by going dormant, spending years to decades underground before reemerging above ground. But an army of the right fungi may help jolt them out of dormancy. So, Smithsonian scientists have been working to understand the ecology of one particular orchid, including why it enters and exits dormancy. And the orchid that they focused on is the small world pagonia that's widely regarded as the rarest orchid east of the Mississippi. So, once again, it's a fascinating look at the things that are happening below ground that we can't see and how meaningful and significant that activity is to plant life. This is a really good one to read. Okay, in my favorite category, shopping, there's a book I wanted to share with you guys that I got via Amazon this week in the mail, and I just love it so much. It's been driving around with me in my car, and I thought you'd get a kick out of it, so I wanted to share it with you. It's called It's the Little Things, Creating Big Moments in Your Home Through the Stylish Small Stuff, and it's by Susanna Salk. What I loved most about this extremely visual book, it's loaded with pictures, it's all about designing with little things in your home is that it includes lots of plants in the images. So whether you're styling and staging with different houseplants or you're doing cool things with vases or structural things like wreaths, I've just fallen head over heels for this book. Now I paid to get a new copy. It's 30 bucks on Amazon. But this book is so pretty, it's one you can actually set out, and I guarantee you people will pick it up and thumb through it because the cover is just so magnetic. Finally, for inspiration this week, I shared a video featuring Gravetie Manor in England, which is just an extraordinary place. It's in Sussex. And how I stumbled on it is this. I was looking at an article on kitchen gardening, and the image that they featured was just so gorgeous, I questioned whether or not it had to do with the article I was reading. I just thought my goodness, this garden is so spectacular, I can't believe that this person actually created this garden. So I happened to right-click on the image, and I said something along the lines of, uh, one of the options was, like, search for this image on Google. And that led me to the original image, which was, of course, Grave Tie Manor which, I mean, it just blows you away when you see it. But when I finally went to their website after seeing this amazing, fantastic, like crazy out-of-this-world inspiring video, and I stumbled on probably one of the most well-done interactive maps of the gardens at Grave Time Manor. So I share it in the Facebook group this week because... Every now and then, I talk to gardeners who are interested in putting together a map of their property for visitors who... Come to their garden, whether it's for a local city garden tour or some other event that they're hosting in their garden. And it's always tough to find ideas for how you want to illustrate or maybe draw out features in your garden. Well, I thought the one that they did for Grave Tie Gardens was absolutely gorgeous and should be extremely inspiring to any gardener that's looking to put together some type of map of their property. So if that's you, I encourage you to get in the Facebook group for Still Growing and check it out. Well, that's it for the Garden News Roundup this week. This is just a portion of the updates that I shared with the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook, and it's a way that I continue the conversation in between podcast episodes with listeners of the show. So if any of these caught your attention, you don't need to take notes. You can just jump in the group and check out all of the interesting things that I curate for you in between episodes. Well, I'm so very pleased today to introduce you to Megan Kane on this episode of the Still Growing Podcast. Megan is the author of The Creative Vegetable Gardener, and her website is creativevegetablegardener.com. Megan is passionate about helping people grow great food and become successful vegetable gardeners. And on her website, she teaches you how to do just that. And she likes to say, here's the thing, gardening is a lot of work, joyful work for sure. But she's met tons of gardeners over the years who are not getting the most from their gardens. And she says, if you're not seeing real results, well, gardening isn't as rewarding a pastime as it should be. So here's the real world situation that Megan wants you to be able to envision for yourself. Imagine a daily jaunt out to your garden to harvest fresh ingredients for dinner. The pleasure that comes from creating something with your own hands a garden, a meal, a bouquet of fresh flowers for the dinner table. Biting into real food with real flavor red tomatoes bursting with ripeness, crisp green spinach spicy yellow peppers and earthy carrots in all the colors of the rainbow. This is what food is supposed to taste like. And when you go to Megan's website and start to snoop around, you'll see that a 10-step guide to smart spring planning is one of the free things that she offers to everyone who visits her website. And Megan's a huge believer that in order to have a wonderful spring, summer, and fall garden, that it all starts with winter planning. So she put together this 10-step guide. And when Megan puts together a guide, you can be certain that it is pragmatic and massively helpful. Now, Megan's written a number of books. So if you go to her website, you'll see that not only can you order a paperback copy, but you can get them in ebook form as well. So she offers super easy seed starting, and then the book that we focus on today, her super easy food preserving, and then she features her brand new book, her Smart Start Garden Planner, which is a step-by-step guide to a successful season. In fact, I just got her newest one in the mail today, and it's gorgeous. I love it. And as someone who sees a lot of garden planners, this is now my new favorite. I'm not kidding. So you can get this in ebook form or you can get the paperback form. I've got both of them thanks to Megan. But after having the actual book in my hands here, I can tell you that I would way prefer to have a garden planner in paperback than I would in an ebook form, but that's just me because I like to do a lot of my garden planning right before I go to bed, and so I don't want to have a ton of screen time right before I close my eyes. So I'd rather work with a paperback and mark it all up with a pen. That's just my preference. Anyway, today you're in for a real treat. So if you haven't heard of Megan Kane before this interview, I guarantee you're going to cross paths with her again because she's the real deal. She's a practitioner and she's someone I see as a garden coach, a vegetable garden coach. So there you go, Megan. From this day forward, you're my personal vegetable garden coach. And I promise not to pester you too much. Well, hello, Megan. I am so delighted that we finally finally get the chance to chat because we have tried so many times to connect but nothing is stopping us today
1: hi jennifer thanks for having me this is one of my favorite things in all the world to do talk about gardening so i'm happy to be here
0: yes we're going to spend our time together chatting about your book called super easy food preserving but first why don't we have you tell us about yourself
1: Sure. My name is Megan Kane, and my business is the Creative Vegetable Gardener. And I help people get the most from their vegetable gardens. So the most can be lots of different things: the most food, the most beauty, the most joy, whatever you want from your garden. I educate and encourage you how to get the most from it. Um, and I do. I'm a. I write and I speak. Uh, And I teach sometimes in person in my area and kind of in my region, but also online as well. So I kind of have two parts of my business. Sometimes people meet me in person and sometimes people meet me online.
0: Well, and we're neighbors, right? I'm in Minnesota. You're in Wisconsin.
1: Yes, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. My husband and I live in the city and we have a big garden at our house, um, a big front yard garden, and then also a big side yard garden, mostly vegetables, but we also have trees and shrubs and and perennials. And we live on a corner, so we have a very visible garden. Uh, We have lots of bikers and walkers and people in cars that are constantly driving by our garden. And often people will stop and ask questions and compliment our garden and kind of say hi. And we've only lived here for about two and a half years. And it was such a great way to meet our neighbors. Yes, Um, When we bought our house, it was actually really overgrown, the whole front yard. And so we cut most of the things down, put in a big vegetable garden, and then the neighborhood just went berserk, kind of in in a good way, not in a bad way. And tons of people would stop by and meet us and talk to us. So it's been really fun to have a very visible garden in the past I've had gardens that are in my backyard that nobody can see, but now we're kind of have a a very public vegetable garden, which is really fun.
0: Wow. Well, two things you said that just delighted me to no end is when you said you have a side garden, because right there, we know you're a true gardener because all gardeners that are totally over the moon passionate about gardening end up with a side garden. So congratulations. (laughs) And the other thing I kept thinking is friend magnet. Gardens are great friend magnets, aren't they?
1: Yeah, they are. And it's actually how we became friends with some of our neighbors. Um, one of our neighbors down the street stopped one day and said, oh, I just love your garden and asked me a couple questions. And then we just got got to talking and eventually we ended up having dinner together. And they already knew a bunch of other neighbors. And then we met all of them. So it's been really fun. And it's also fun. We had some new neighbors move in next door and they have two little girls. And now the girls come over and help me harvest things from the garden. And then I send them home with bags of food. So it's a great friend magnet, and it's also a great way to to really share with your neighbors and the people in your neighborhood. So I have a bunch of people on my phone, and sometimes I'll text them and say, hey, if you want any of this, something that I have a lot of, just come by the garden. Um, and then with a few close neighbors, I have kind of a standing invitation. Like if you don't, I said to my one neighbor this summer, don't ever buy any kale. If you need any kale, just come to my front yard, harvest whatever you want. It doesn't matter if I'm home. You don't have to ask. And then I say that it's the same with herbs because I have a lot of herbs. It's hard to use all your herbs. So I always say, don't buy any herbs. Just come to my garden. So it's a a great way to be able to share with everybody as well.
0: It is. That's marvelous. You know, I have the same deal with a friend of mine that lives a few houses down, and she's a wonderful cook. And she'll come over, and she has carte blanche to harvest whatever she wants, whenever she wants. And I'll never forget, there was a moment this summer when she came over, and she was back in the herb garden, and she was getting whatever she needed. And normally, she'll just get it and then leave. And next thing you know, I hear uh, the doorbell go off. And I thought, hmm, I wonder what's going on. And she's like, you don't have tarragon? (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, no. I didn't I couldn't find any tarragon this year and I didn't get it planted. And the next day, the doorbell rings. She ding-dong ditched me and left a tarragon plant on my doorstep. <laughs> so, uh yes, yeah, so then we had tarragon for my dear friend. But I I I always love hearing about the friendships that that gardens help us form. I had interviewed Shelly Cram, the author of The Gardener's Bible. Lovely, lovely book. And when she sent me a copy, she had written in the front cover, she said, "'Gardening is common ground.'" And it really is. And I think Mm -hmm. especially in a neighborhood, the way that you did it, where you come in and you revive and revitalize this property. And the next thing you know, people, you're a magnet. People cannot resist stopping by and introducing themselves to you. I love it.
1: I definitely agree.
0: Well, I think the reason that your book is so exciting to gardeners, I know I loved looking through this, And to cooks, I would say, is because it offers quick techniques for fresh fridge and freezer storage. And people often think of extending the growing season with things like hoop houses or cold frames, but you see preserving and appliances like the refrigerator and the freezer as effective season extenders. And I loved that image. It's a great way of thinking about extending the harvest.
1: Yeah, I'm a, I'm definitely a minimalist in all areas of my life. So including gardening and food preserving, I always try the most simple thing first and to see if that works. And so that was one of the things I started to experiment with, food preserving, because canning, a lot of people really like it, and I think that's great. And for a lot of people, it feels like it's too intimidating or it's too much work or you need too many supplies. So I started to, I actually started canning first and then started to think, how can I make this easier? Uh, and so then I would start, I started to experiment with different ways of putting food away. Um, and so <laughs> I'm, I'm a minimalist and I'm kind of, I like to do the least amount of work possible. I love gardening and I spend a fair amount of time doing it, but I don't want to spend unnecessary time on tasks because I also have a life just like everybody else and have lots of other things that I want to spend my time doing. So I love gardening, but I want to be efficient at it. And that goes for food preserving as well.
0: So can we chat briefly about the layout of your book? Because you include some worksheets and checklists. How do you see people using this resource?
1: Well, I wanted to lay it out almost like a cookbook so where each, Vegetable, fruit, or herb has its own page or several pages so that you don't have to read the book from front to back. You can come in from your garden and say, oh my gosh, I have a ton of kale right now, more than I can eat, more than I can give away. How can I preserve some kale? And then you can just go right to the kale page, read it through, and then just preserve some kale. So I I wanted to design it so that I think what happens to many of us gardeners is that all of a sudden you have a bunch of food and you need to know what to do with it right now. And so I wanted to have a book where you could just get get the information right away in the moment that you need it most.
0: I love that. Well, from now on, I'm going to start to think of you as kind of the Occam's razor of food preservation because it really <laughs> is. You're going for the very simplest way to do it. Possible. I love the story that you told in your introduction about being the lazy food preserver. I'm going to say ingenious (laughs) as well, though, because you really are looking for good solutions. You're not necessarily taking shortcuts that are sloppy or that wouldn't work necessarily. They've got to be valid. They've got to work. And this has to fly in the face of so many common notions about food preserving. You mentioned, you know, people's reaction when you say the word canning. I know for myself, I've never canned, and it is intimidating. So what are some of the common reactions that you hear from folks who are leery to start to get into food preservation?
1: I think a lot of it's the work that people have these visions of food preserving. I think sometimes people help they're especially in the Midwest. I didn't grow up in the Midwest, but now they live in the Midwest. A lot of people have farming backgrounds. Their grandparents or great grandparents had farms and they have these memories of these marathon canning sessions where they would <laughs> help their grandmother for like twelve hour days canning. Um and so I think I think people are worried about that. Also the safety issue, because there are things you have to keep in mind when you're canning so that you do it safely. Um Yeah, I think it's just the knowledge. I think people, I I actually don't think canning is, once you do it a few times, it's very doable. Uh, But there is a bit of a learning curve, and I think that makes people nervous. And I do think it's a time commitment. I do know some people that have mastered the art of canning in very small batches, so it doesn't take a lot of time. But often, my husband and I can usually one thing a year, which is salsa, because we like to give it away and we use it a lot. Uh, But it always is like a 12-hour day of canning. By the time we chop everything and cook it down and can everything and then clean up the whole kitchen, it's very often a a pretty long day. And, of course, it's always a day where it's going to be 85 or 90 degrees because it's August or early September. And you're just sweating yourself out in your kitchen. So, so I think those are some, some of the reasons. That, that, and, and then what I realized, is, which is why I wrote this book, is that I would talk to people about different options. I would say, well, you don't have to can. You can do this or I do this. And, and a lot, not a lot of people knew that there were other options. I think a lot of people, when, when they think food preserving, they think canning and they think that's the only option and over the the years of my experimentation i realized oh that's only one option of several there's and there's ones that are a lot easier i think
0: All right. And we're going to be getting into some of those as well here in a little bit. But herbs are some of the easiest edibles to preserve. And most people can relate to drying them. They just have to think about going to the nearest spice aisle in the grocery store. And when you say dried herbs, that usually doesn't faze people. That's not a mystery. But going beyond that is often unfamiliar territory for most gardeners. And I have my own variety of ways that I like to store herbs, but I'm always fascinated by the ways that other people do it. So how do you like to store herbs? Well, one thing I've been doing recently, the last couple of years,
1: is that I have a few recipes that, ha- that use herb sauces. So I have a recipe that I really like that has a chimichurri sauce, which is a lot of different herbs, which would be extremely expensive to make that that sauce in the winter. And so actually last year I thought, okay, I really love this dish. And we often eat it in the winter. Why don't I make a bunch of the sauces in the summer when I have tons of herbs and I'll just freeze them. And I put them in little glass jars, like jam jars, enough for one serving. So I made a couple batches of the sauce, put it in jam jars, put it in my freezer. And then now when I want to have that recipe, I just, Bring it out. I don't have to go to this. I, I probably wouldn't actually make that recipe in the winter because it calls for so many herbs, it would be so expensive. Um, and so I was actually just trying to figure out what to cook for dinner this week. And I looked up there's a shiitake lentil taco recipe that I really love. And I looked at the recipe and I thought, oh no, the sauce that it uses calls for like two cups of ba- basil leaves. And I thought, oh, that's kind of a lot of basil. And I thought, next year I'm making that sauce in the summer. And freezing it so that I have it over the winter. So that's one thing that I like to do. Um, Certainly not the most simple way to preserve herbs, but it's one of the more interesting ways.
0: Okay, hold um, the phone, hold the phone. First of all, I think that's a drop the mic kind of idea or notion that you're <laughs> that you're putting that together. I love the way your brain works. That's fantastic. So instead of, you know, taking the herb and seeing it as a standalone, you're looking at entire recipes that are heavy duty herb users and you're preparing those maybe out of season in a sense for the recipe, but not out of season for the herbs. And then you're storing that, you're batch producing this and you're storing it in your freezer. Now I want to make sure I understand how you're storing it. You're preserving it in a glass jar with a lid and then just throwing it in the freezer. Is that how you're doing it?
1: Yeah. So I'm making the sauce. The chimichurri sauce is almost like a it's almost like a thin pesto. Okay. you have never made chimichurri. So never. it's a bunch of herbs and it's got some lemon and, and lime, which sometimes I just add later. Uh, but it's almost like a thin pesto. And so, yeah, I just make the sauce and then put it in. I have lots of little jam jars. I put it in a jam jar, put a lid on it, and then just throw it in the freezer. So I actually freeze a fair amount in glass, but you have to be careful. There's, Different people have different success in freezing with glass. I have not had success freezing really liquidy things in glass. I've had my glass break. Yes. Um, then other people say, well, if you do it this way or use this kind of jar, I never have a break. But So I've, I'm, I don't freeze liquidy things in glass. But anything that's more like a sauce or a paste
0: or then anything you put that's that. dry. Okay
1: like berries I'll put in glass so you okay. don't have to worry if you make a pesto or you make a sauce that's that's pretty thick you don't have to worry about freezing in glass.
0: Okay. That's why I had to ask you. Well, first of all, Minnesota raised, Iowa born, I know all about expansion plus I'm married to an engineer. So I would never get away <laughs> with With freezing in glass. And so that's why I had to ask, you know, my go-to for all things freezer is a Ziploc storage bag, a freezer bag. So, which obviously Mm -hmm. we could use as well, right? You could use that. You wouldn't be opposed to that, would you?
1: No, you can use Ziploc bags. The thing that I don't like about them is they do wear out after a season or two. Sometimes they get holes in them. And so I, I... I like the jars because I can just use them over and over and over. And I don't feel like I'm creating waste that just, I mean, we can recycle plastic bags here, but I still don't feel that great about all the plastic that I end up disposing of. So I like jars because I feel, and lids, and I can just use them over and over and over and over and over, and they don't really wear out. You know, okay. periodically they break.
0: But, okay, um, Got But it. yes,
1: you can certainly use. Uh, sometimes people will freeze sauces or pestos in ice cube trays and then move the ice cubes into a Ziploc bag. Some people just make little patties and freeze those and then move them to a oh. Ziploc bag. So there's lots of different ways that you can freeze things. You don't have to freeze it in a jar. Oh, I um, love the patty I do, idea. Yes, yeah, so, but I do like to have one thing to keep in mind is what are, what's the serving size for you? And so sometimes I try to freeze Things in a serving size or two serving size sizes. I wouldn't freeze a whole um, quart jar of sauce or pesto because we probably wouldn't. It would take us a long time to use that much. So I try to go for some small smaller containers or smaller quantities so that I know okay I can use this whole jar in one recipe or half the jar in one recipe. Okay.
0: Um,
1: so that's one thing I kind of think about over time.
0: Well, now I'm totally tracking with you. It's you and your husband, so jam jars are working for you. Where with me and four teenagers and the dog, I usually end up having to save a <laughs> few leftovers otherwise I get the sad face. So I, you know, for yeah, me yeah. I need a couple of jam jars or or a bigger container. So I love that you're thinking about all of these things with kind of the end in mind really you're you're reverse engineering how you are going about preserving and I love that. You know, the other thing is let's talk a little bit about storing in these patties or this idea that you can make kind of a patty out of the paste I'm assuming, right? That you're making whether it's a pesto or some type of thicker substance. Have you done that? Have you made something into a patty and preserved it that way?
1: You know, I don't because I I like I just like the jars. I think I just like the the simplicity of the jar for me is that I can just put the sauce right in the jar, and I just put the jar in the freezer where there's something about the extra step of the patty, so I have to make it into a patty, then I have to come back when it's frozen and then put it in a bag. I don't know that doesn't <laughs> it's not really that big of an extra step, but um but yeah, I think the jars work for me, but just like you said everybody is going to have something different that works for them. And that's one of the great things about food preserving and the great things about gardening is that everybody has their own
0: technique.
1: Um, and And it's funny that you said reverse engineering because I talk about that a lot in gardening. And one of the ways, and I talk about this in the book, one of the ways to reverse engineer over time is to keep records of what you preserve. Uh, and that's how I've kind of come up with a food-preserving formula in a way that I know that we never need more than 12 pestos because we just don't eat that many pestos. Um, and, you can, and it can just be... In the book, I just have a really simple record-keeping sheet, and you can actually print it out on my website after you get the book. And I just have a binder, and I just have a sheet in the binder, and I just keep track of what I preserve every year. And then I total it up at the end of the year. And then the next season, when I'm preserving, I'll say, okay, how many how many pestos did I put away last year? I'll say, okay, I put away 12. Yeah, we pretty much use them all. Okay, that's a great number. Um, or I'll say like, oh, we, you know, last year we put, we froze kale and we've used it all before the kale season started again. So I made a mental note and thought, okay, we need to put, I need to freeze more kale next winter. And so this fall when I was freezing kale, I checked to see, okay, how much did I freeze last winter? I froze 10 that wasn't enough, so maybe I'll try to freeze 15 this year. Um, and so that's a way, if you pay attention and keep just very simple records, um, you can eventually, and certainly things change from year to year and people's lifestyles change and circumstances, but you can kind of come up with a formula. Because again, thinking about not wasting time or, or money, um, you don't want to put away more than you're actually going to use. In our house, the goal is of is kind of to try to eat through everything that we preserved in, in a year so that we're we're starting new because quality degrades over time. And so it's a good idea to try to eat everything within a year or two. Um, and so you don't want to be putting away lots of things that you end up I mean, I've actually had things that I put away and then we didn't eat it and I ended up just defrosting it and throwing it in the compost. <laughs> Which is not you know, it's kind of a waste of time and energy because you're you're you put in all the energy to preserve it, and then all the energy that goes into storing something, especially if it's in your freezer. So, um, so really thinking about what you want, what you eat, and so that you're preserving things that you know that you're going to eat throughout the winter.
0: Hmm. And then, do you also track? Let's say, for instance, like around here, where we never have enough basil pesto. So what you would have me do is kind of track how many times I actually wanted to have basil pesto, but I didn't have it so that the following year I increase my batch size and I'm not just blindly shooting at some goal that might or might not get me to my target. You're really trying to make this a little more scientific.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it, it depends how organized you are. Certainly I keep it simple, Um but, yeah, you could certainly do that where you, if you run out in January. You know, when I ran out of kale, I didn't necessarily mark down every time I wish I had kale. I just made a mental note, not enough kale. <laughs> and then this year, I'll just freeze more, and then hopefully it'll be enough.
0: You'll try and if to it's satisfy. not, then I'll
1: keep increasing it.
0: Okay, okay. Well, there you and, go. And it
1: does change a little bit from year to year. You know, maybe one year, I, I don't know, we kale way more than we do the next winter so it fluctuates a little bit but i have kind of a ballpark that i'm shooting for um and with certain things it's i know that we're going to eat it all and then we want a few extra to give away and my sister really likes pesto so i'll make sure i have a few extra jars she just asked me when we came to visit for thanksgiving she said i just finished my pesto do you have any more and so i brought her a jar so it's also nice to have a little bit extra to give away to friends and family members Certainly, if you know that they like a very particular thing that you make.
0: Well, she sounds like my sister from another mister because I'd be asking you for more pesto as well. So (laughs) that's wonderful. You're being a nice sister and giving her some more pesto. Well, this is the perfect segue (laughs) into how you start your guide out this lovely book called Super Easy Food Preserving. And right in the beginning, on page eight and nine, there's a fantastic worksheet that you designed with, I thought, some very thought-provoking questions that are designed to help folks decide on their preserving priorities. And I thought it would be fun if I asked you these questions and then had you share your insights onto how these questions kind of impact people's preserving choices. So are you ready? Sure. Yeah, I'm ready. So, and by the way, I think this is excellent. It's Totally practical, but also so helpful. So here we go. What fruits and vegetables do I buy from the grocery store on a weekly basis? That's question one.
1: Yeah, so I'm the the, the most ideal person for this particular question. Because we preserve so much, I rarely buy fruits and vegetables from a grocery store. All winter, um, it's it, my fruits and vegetables that I usually buy are things that I can't preserve or I don't preserve. Like um, lemons and limes are probably one of the most common things because they're used to flavor a lot of dishes, or like an avocado here and there. Bananas. So yeah, when I go to the grocery store, I pretty much bypass the produce aisle because <laughs> I have everything I need at my house.
0: And I was whispering to you, so bananas, bananas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, right, <laughs> sometimes the bananas to to freeze we're my husband and I are unique, I think, in that we eat we try to eat as locally as possible all year long, um, and so frankly, in the winter, we don't buy fresh tomatoes, we just use the tomato products that we froze um we don't really we don't eat a lot of things that are out of season except for you know periodically an avocado or I freeze some bananas for smoothies, um, but we just yeah, I mean, we just stick to what we've preserved so much food that it doesn't really make sense for us to be buying tons of stuff from the grocery store because we need to work through what we, what we've put away. So that being said, I would say if, if I didn't preserve a lot, um, one example I could say is like, Oh, I buy fruit to, for a smoothie because I usually have a smoothie every day for, for breakfast. And so then you could think, okay, well, what fruit do I usually buy? Well, I buy, buy a lot of blueberries and I buy a lot of raspberries buy a lot of bananas, so those are hard and can't grow those in the Midwest. But um and so then I would say, okay, well I really want to freeze a lot of blueberries and raspberries so that I can use those for my smoothie. Um and, and that's what I do. And I actually uh just go blueberry picking and raspberry picking. I pick a ton. I picked like twenty five pounds of blueberries this past summer. Oh and then I just freeze them all and use them in my smoothies. Um So, you know, for another example, is like we eat a lot of beans and rice, like burritos sometimes. So you could say like, oh, okay, from the grocery store, I'm often buying onions and garlic for a lot of my dishes. So those are two things that I grow in my garden because when we cook, we cook a lot at home and everything that we cook starts with garlic and onions in the pan. And so that would be something that I would grow every single week or I would buy every single week from the grocery store. And instead I can just go into my basement and grab them and start cooking instead. So that question is really, you know, food preserving is very personal and it has to do the most with your own particular situation what you like to eat, what your family likes to eat and the things that you eat on a regular basis. I'm thinking which of those things can you potentially preserve so that you can save some money and even save some time? Because it's like we all buy the same things every single week, basically from the grocery store (laughs) and you can save some time by having them in your basement instead.
0: Well, I love that. And I love that, When we're talking about changing behavior here, we're not changing what you're eating. We're just changing where you're going to source it, where you're going to get it. And it's a lot easier to just head down the basement steps to get what you need instead of having to drive to the store, potentially forget it, and come back home with nothing.
1: Right. And then I think also sometimes what happens is it does change what you eat. Right now in my my office, I have four crates full of sweet potatoes. And when I was sat down this morning, when I was having my tea, I thought, okay, which one am I going to cook for dinner this week? And I thought, I have to cook something with sweet potatoes because we have so many sweet potatoes, we have to use them. Um, and so it's a different... I think as gardeners, we're used to, to a certain extent, planning our meals around what's coming from our garden. Certainly, that's what I do. Whatever's coming from my garden, that dictates what I'm cooking. Um, and, and, food, and food preserving is just an extension of that. I'm still doing that in the winter. I'm still thinking about okay what do I have in my freezer what do I have in my pantry what are the thing what are the vegetables I need to use and then I go out and figure out what i'm gonna cook instead of the other way around hmm. um, so like I said I think as gardeners we already do that and food preserving is just an extension of that in the winter. Hmm.
0: Your story here is reminding me of something that happened with my daughter Emma one time. And when my kids were little, I was a huge garage sailor because I knew they were gonna be tall. And once they get past a certain size, you really have to buy their clothes. You can't, you know, just source them from garage sales. But I had one year, I think she was like four or five, I had gone to garage sales and I would buy their clothes ahead of time and then I'd buy them up in the basement by size. And I'd go down in the fall and get the winter clothes and go down in the spring and get the spring clothes. Well, this particular spring, I think Emma was four, I went down to the basement. And here, apparently, on a number of different trips, I had bought three different Easter dresses. So (laughs) I laid them out on the sofa. And I said, Emma, you get to pick which one you like. Yeah, I have three Easter dresses for you. And She picked one out, and I said, you know, I said, when I was a little girl, I only got one Easter dress, and that was a huge deal to get an Easter dress. And she looked at me, and she said, didn't you have a basement? (laughs) 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 And it could be easily the same thing for, you know, how kids think about, you know, where does food come from? Because if you're growing up in a family where mom's preserving or dad's preserving, And you think about going to the freezer to get the items that you need to cook. It's a lot different than saying, oh, mom has to go to the grocery store to get the food or mom has to go to the restaurant to get the food. No, this came from our garden and we go to our freezer to get the food that we need.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I've never quite thought about it in that way, but I love
0: that. And the next question in the guide is, what meals and snacks are regular features of my family's diet?
1: Yeah, so I kind of talked about that and I I jumped to the second question a little bit, but I would say smoothies, something that I eat every day. So I think about what ingredients I put in the smoothie and what of those can I grow. We eat, like I said, a lot of beans and rice. So onions and garlic and some kind of tomato product or salsa, corn, peppers. We often eat some kind of like beans and rice or quesadillas or burritos. It's kind of a last minute dinner, easy dinner idea, Uh, salad, we eat a lot of salad, often have a salad with dinner, so that could be something that maybe some people buy from the grocery store a lot, salad ingredients, yeah, and a lot of things with tomato products, like soups, or I often find that that could be something if you buy a lot of canned tomatoes, chopped tomatoes, or whole tomatoes, that's something we tend to use a lot in different recipes. So, yeah, I think those are the, some of our main, main dishes. And like I said, anything, everything starts with onions and
0: garlic. Perfect. The next question is, are there foods I want to eat out of season? And this kind of gets to that, was it the chimichurri sauce that you make? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, some herb sauces are things I want to eat out of season. Pesto, certainly. If, if, you, if you're lucky that you live somewhere, you can grow basil year-round. And maybe it's not an issue, but for many of us in colder weather areas, basil's done with, right with that first frost. Um, so anything with basil is often, or any, even some other herbs. Um, I freeze a lot of red peppers because that's something that can be really expensive from the grocery store in the winter. And I'm I don't eat green peppers because they're basically just like they're basically an unripe pepper. <laughs> I don't I think they taste like cardboard. So I love red peppers, and I freeze a ton because that's something that I, I like to tell the story. One year I went into, I stopped in at Whole Foods just to get a couple of ingredients for dinner, and I walked through the produce aisle, and it said, "Big sale on red peppers," and it was three ninety nine a pepper, a red <laughs> per red pepper, and that was on sale. Wow! <laughs> and yes. I thought, oh my gosh, I have at least. 50 red peppers in my freezer. I was like, Oh my gosh, that's like $200. Yes, you had $200. <laughs> like, okay, I have at least $200 of red peppers in my freezer. Probably more this year, certainly. Cause I grew, I had a great red pepper year. So, so just that, yeah, that's just one thing to think about. Um, how? which is, I know, is one of the future questions on there, but how expensive are things in the winter?
0: This next question is, what foods taste noticeably better when I eat them during their local growing season?
1: Tomatoes is a big one. I think that comes to a lot of our minds. Tomatoes, that, once you grow a tomato, and then if you try to buy a tomato from the grocery store in the winter, it's just so disappointing. It's just... Like, we don't even buy them because it's so different than the tomatoes that we eat from our garden in the summer. So, it's you can't. It's very unless you live in a very warm area. It's very difficult to have fresh fresh tomatoes in the winter. But I cook down a lot of my tomatoes. So I cook down a lot of my tomatoes in summer so that we can use them for sauce and for other things in the winter. And the difference between a jarred sauce, tomato sauce that you'd buy from the grocery store and a, and the sauce that you make from your own tomatoes in summer is so different because we're, you're cooking down those tomatoes at the height of the season. So there's so many times that I make a sauce in the winter and I just taste a little bit of that sauce and I just am completely transported into the summer. And I just think, oh, it tastes so good. It's so sweet. It's so flavorful. I can I can taste summer. So it's not quite as good as having a fresh tomato, but I would say it's second best because you're having, having the, the fresh tomatoes from summer cooked down into something that contains a lot of that flavor from those fresh tomatoes.
0: That is a great point. Yes. So, this next question is along the lines of your red pepper story, and it is, which foods provide the highest value when preserved?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question and one that I've had other gardeners pose to me, and I think it's an interesting lens to look at your garden through. What gives you the most bang for your buck? A lot of us don't have enough room to grow everything that we want to eat or preserve, and so what are some of the high-value vegetables? And and sometimes there's things that are expensive all year round or expensive at the farmer's market. So I would say Brussels sprouts are one of those things. I was just speaking, talking with my mother-in-law over Thanksgiving because we brought some Brussels sprouts from our garden, and I was saying, I can't believe how expensive they are at the farmer's market, um, and that's part of the reason why I grow them myself. And so things that are expensive maybe all year round, things that maybe are things that you like to buy or that are organic. And obviously organic produce is often more expensive than conventional. Um, And then potentially things that are expensive in the winter, like red peppers or tomato products or kale or broccoli. Um, And so I think you can think about that when you are planning what you want to grow in your garden, even just what you want to have fresh throughout the season, but also, when you're thinking about what you want to preserve. So like I had said, red peppers are a big one for me. They're very expensive. And then herbs, like we've already talked about. Herbs are very expensive in the winter. And I think a common complaint is that people use only part of a package and then the rest of the package goes bad because you don't really need the whole package for your recipe. Um, And so that would be one thing to just take a look at the grocery store and see what's expensive at different times of the year and what are – and if you love some of those things, can you grow them in your own garden and or preserve them? Um, I last a couple of winters ago I usually store butternut squash in my basement and I went into I usually shop at the local food co op and I went in and I was just, just looking at the butternut squash and I and I just looked at the price and was like, I wonder how much that butternut squash is and I picked one that was very similar to one that I had in my stored in my basement and I put it on the scale and it was twelve bucks. No, it was a pretty big one. And then I thought, I have one in my basement. I didn't even grow it. I just bought it at the farmer's market, and it was a dollar, the same size. Oh, my. (laughs) So in the winter, things are coming from very far away. Certainly, maybe not if you live in California, but if you live in Minnesota and Wisconsin and some of those other states like we do, things are coming from pretty far away, so we're going to be paying more for those things. Um, And that, so if you can have some of those things on hand and one of the benefits of buying things at the height of a season, like when I bought my butternut squash in September or October, it's so inexpensive because supply and demand, everybody has butternut squash. And so it's only a dollar or two per squash, but then in the winter, they're much more rare. So they're much more expensive at the grocery store. Hmm.
0: Well, and at the same time, as you're talking about, you know, being in Minnesota and Wisconsin and the fact that, you know, preserving makes so much financial sense, I love listening to you and thinking, yes, she lives in Madison, Wisconsin, with such a limited growing season compared to the rest of the United States. And yet look what Megan is able to do. With her preserving. So to me, I think there's, you know, two ways of really looking at this very admirably. And that is, you know, one, you know, recognizing that we do live in a shorter growing season. So what do we need to do to maximize that? But then also not letting that define you. It doesn't have to be, you know, oh, well, we can't make as much. It was just not possible because you're really breaking that barrier as well.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of a fun challenge. You feel like you're cheating the season when you live in somewhere like Wisconsin or Minnesota. It gets really cold and you're still eating stuff from your garden. I mean, really, I'm eating food from my garden all year round it's not always coming directly out of my garden when I'm eating it sometimes I already preserved it um, but yeah you you feel I don't know like victorious you're like yeah I cheated the season I'm I'm eating something from my garden in January yeah um, and I think it is really a way to gardening is a lot of work even if you try to minimize that amount of work it's, it's really joyful work, but it's a time commitment and a financial commitment and if you can get that produce and get your garden to last and feed you as long as possible and as for, for as many months of the year as possible, it makes it even more fun and worthwhile, I think.
0: And I love that you are doing it all with the garden in summer. You're not doing this with a hoop house or a greenhouse or Uh, some type of high tunnel, you're really doing it with the garden, the summer garden in a northern garden. And you're just maximizing it that way. You know, I would love to have my own greenhouse, but that's just not going to happen. And uh, in short of, you know, trudging out in the snow and trying to get, you know, into a cold frame, I mean, that just doesn't even appeal to me because of how terrible the winters can be. I mean, if we have a devastating winter up here, there's just there's no joy in that for me. So this I really like and I can completely latch on to this whole idea of cheating winter. I love that. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I do have some season extension. I don't have a greenhouse or or anything like that but i am experimenting with trying to keep things going as long as possible in my own garden but i agree right now we're having a very mild fall and early winter um but yeah we could have we got i got three inches of almost three inches of rain yesterday and my husband and i were talking about at dinner oh my gosh we could if that was three inches of if that was equal to snow, we would have had like three feet of snow. So you never know in, in the Midwest. So when you have things, yeah, tucked warmly in your house and you just have to go to the basement to get food instead of out to a snowy garden, it does make a big difference.
0: Yes. Well, and yeah, you just don't know what you're in for. Now, last year, I was sharing this with Anna Thomas when we were talking about holiday menu planning. I had allowed some of my herbs just to stay up in the garden. I didn't harvest them. I just let them be. And I always say, God freeze-dried them for me. Because when it came time for my Christmas party in the second weekend of December, we'd had such a mild winter that they had just been gently frozen. And it was like, that was my outdoor refrigerator. And I could just go outside and harvest the herbs that I didn't get around to in late fall. And it was lovely. It was wonderful. So sometimes you get lucky with, you know, what you can do outside if it's not too harsh in the Midwest.
1: Yeah, yep, that is true. But you never know. You don't know. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so you're taking a
0: gamble. Yes, yeah, so you're taking a gamble. Well, this last question is, what foods will make me happy to have stored in my pantry? What makes Megan Kane the happiest? If you could only have maybe a <laughs> handful that you just had to have, I have to know what's on your must list.
1: Yeah, so I like this question because I feel like we focus a lot on, like, practicality and strategy and, like, common sense things. But there's a certain amount of gardening that just – I don't want to forget the joyful, happy part of it. And sometimes there's things that strategically don't make sense or practically don't make sense, but they just make you happy to have in your garden. And by all means, you should grow those and you should preserve those. Even if you can get them inexpensively from the from the grocery store, but if you like having them, that's all that matters. So, I really love having garlic and onions, and that would be one thing. Like onions, they're not that expensive from the grocery store, but I like I love growing onions, and I like storing them in my basement, and I like going down when it's time to cook dinner and getting a bunch of onions and garlic out of my basement. It's just it it it's a creates a lot of joy for me in my life. Just this little, little tiny pieces of joy. Um, so those are ones that we always focus on every year. Um, I do really love having blueberries and raspberries, uh, because those kind of feel like very valuable because they are expensive often from the grocery store when you buy them frozen. And like I said, I eat a lot of smoothies, so I use them for my smoothies. um, Pesto is something that we eat a lot of. I actually make basil pesto, and I also make garlic skate pesto. Um, so we have lots of pesto and red peppers we already talked about. I feel like I'm rich when I have lots of red peppers. <laughs> those, are, those are probably the main ones. And kale is something that we use a lot of, frozen kale. So we often will freeze a bunch of kale as well.
0: Let's chat quickly about using all the parts of the plants, like carrot leaves or radish leaves, and how you like to use them in your preserving. Are there parts of plants that you preserve that maybe other gardeners discard out of hand?
1: Yeah, I don't actually think I'm very good at that. <laughs> I mostly use the parts of the plant probably that everybody else uses, and I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I did just harvest a bunch of beets and a bunch of carrots out of my garden, and I just composted all the leaves. Oh. So I see people on sometimes on Instagram or social media that are like, oh, I made this such and such from these leaves or those leaves, and I just, I'm not very good at that, I have to be honest. Um, So I would love to hear from some of the listeners of your show if anybody has some great recipes or good suggestions for Using some of the parts of the plant that I embarrassingly do not use. (laughs) Well, there you go.
0: Goals for 2017. But I tell you what, I have one for you right off the bat that was life changing to me. And it's Anna Thomas's Carrot Top Pesto. Oh my Mm, gosh. I'm telling you, it is unbelievable it's fantastic and the kids okay. my kids love it which to me was the litmus test is this going to pass you know muster and it definitely did so carrot top pesto you'll never get rid of your carrot tops again
1: okay i'm going to try that because i actually have still have a half of a bed of carrots sitting out there so i'm, oh, gonna, I'm gonna do it i'm score. gonna it
0: Yeah, do it for sure. And I'll send you the recipe. So there you go. That'd be great. Well, you have a motto on page 11 that was very striking to me. It just literally stopped me. I was, you know, flipping through and I saw that and I thought, okay, I've got to talk to Megan about this. You wrote, shoot for abundance with a few crops and I loved this. So share your thoughts behind this profound advice and then I'm very curious to know what you grow in abundance in your own garden. <laughs>
1: yeah, so I have a bigger garden for sure. I don't have a small garden. It's about 1600 square feet. So it's big but not huge. I don't have a mini farm or anything like that. Um and I Instead of planting, even for people with smaller gardens or medium gardens, instead of planting one of lots of different things, a different way you could look at your garden is to plant a lot of a few different things. I used to have a community garden plot as well as a home garden, and we used our community garden plot almost like a little production garden where we would plant 220 garlic and 500 onions and 40 tomato plants and just try to use it to produce a lot of a bunch of different things. Um, So I think there's two, there's obviously several different ways to go about gardening, but uh, one way to go about it is are there, instead of growing lots and lots of different things, if there's some things that you really love, can you grow a lot of those things? So I have, I would say part of my garden is focused on that, growing lots of of certain vegetables and then I save some of my garden where I just grow a little bit of a bunch of different things that I like to have around Um, so in our garden we usually grow about 220 garlic we save some of those for seed and then we store them in in our basement the rest in our basement all winter and use our own garlic we usually plant somewhere between 3 and 500 onions Uh, same thing store them in our basement for as much of the winter as possible so that we can use our own onions uh, I used to grow a lot of tomatoes um, because I would we would freeze some tomatoes, freeze a lot of tomatoes, actually, and then also make salsa. But um, one thing that we haven't talked about, which I'll just insert really quick right here, is that you don't have to grow everything you preserve. And so I've decided over the years that I'd rather purchase some tomatoes from the farmer's market for some of my freezing and salsa and free up some of that area that I used to devote to tomatoes. I used to grow about 40 tomato plants. And now this past year, I only grew about 12. And then now I can fill that space up with other things.
0: Oh, that, um, that makes it much more carefree, doesn't it? Yeah,
1: and you, and I have a lot, I've had a lot of tomato disease some years. And I don't know, I just got tired of growing a lot of tomatoes. Maybe I'll go back to growing 40 tomatoes again. But I just thought, I want some more room for other things. So... So I used to grow a lot of tomatoes, not as much anymore. I grow a lot of peppers, red pepper plants. I had about 40 red pepper plants this year. And one of the, I think, benefits of growing a lot of something is that you feel so rich and abundant. And it's such an interesting feeling, I think, especially with food, which is not something that we we often feel. I think gardeners are lucky to sometimes experience that feeling. But for me it's it's very I feel this feeling with red peppers in particular. So this year I had a great red pepper year and I was harvesting 5 gallon buckets full of red peppers. Oh. And I just felt so rich. I just felt so abundant. I just felt like I my I just have I have all these red peppers and they're worth so much. Not necessarily just financially, but just I don't know. It just, it's, it's a feeling that's hard to explain, but I just felt like I could do anything with these red peppers. I could roast them. I could freeze them. I could give them away. I started calling neighbors and having people come by and I would give them a huge bag of red and yellow and orange peppers. And it was just, it's just a really special and joyful feeling to feel like you have a lot of something. Now, certainly the flip side of that is that feeling stressed out about having too much of something. And so it's a fine line because I'm not, you don't want to plant so much of something that you feel stressed out and you don't know what to do with it. Um, but something like red peppers is something that you can easily give away. They're very easy to freeze. Um, it's just that feeling of abundance that it's hard to feel when you buy food from the grocery store, or even from the farmer's market. My sister stayed with us for about a month um, last summer and she just, she was just commenting about like how many vegetables we had. And ju- and she said, you know, when I go grocery shopping or when I look at recipes, I kind of think about like, okay, how much is it going to cost to make this recipe? Because maybe some of these vegetables are expensive. And I never think about that because I always have all these vegetables from my own garden. And I often will double the, double the vegetables or triple the vegetables. And I never have to think about, Oh, I can't use all this broccoli because this broccoli head was really expensive. It's like, no, I have ten more broccoli heads in the in the garden. Who cares? I'll use the whole thing. It's this is great. I have I have plenty. Um so it's that feeling I think of plenty that is a part of gardening that I that I've grown to really appreciate and I think is a very unique feeling when it comes to food. Um because I think, you know, a lot of people in our society, struggle to, to buy healthy food. Some of the prices are high. Um, but when you have your own garden, you have this fresh, tasty, healthy, organic food that's just – there's just tons of it. And it feels – yeah, there's something about it that feels so good. So that's – when you think about growing – going for abundance with a few crops, that's one thing to think about. Like, are there a few things that you'd be really excited to have a lot of? and consider planting a bunch of those plants and maybe you know decreasing some of the other things in your garden or digging up a new garden bed so that you can <laughs> so that you can enlarge <laughs> your garden
0: I love it I think this is all fantastic well and you know the best thing about I think what you're doing and especially keen in on the feeling of having quantities of things that are life-giving to you preserved is that you're really extending the pleasure of gardening, that it doesn't just have to be a one-season experience, that you can really enjoy the fruit of your labor all year long. So I love that.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point because I think we gardeners, especially we who live in long winter areas, (laughs) we get a little restless. So yeah, things like food preserving can kind of help extend the joy, and really, I mean, I think I saw a quote one time, and it didn't say who said it, but it said, the point of gardening is to be happy. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, that's a great one. I mean, yeah, the point is to also grow your own food and blah, blah, blah. But, but if you're not happy, and if it doesn't bring you joy, then I then it's not something that you're necessarily going to continue. So I think it's good to focus on what are the parts that make you happy, bring you joy, uh, and for me, food preserving is one of those things because it's like you said. I feel like I'm getting the most from my garden, and I get to really appreciate my garden in July in January. Yes, in a way, just like I do in July. So it kind of brings some of that July and puts it into January, February, March, which can also be kind of be dark months here in yes. Wisconsin.
0: Well, and I think you're giving some incentive to people who maybe are purely ornamental gardeners to consider how they can incorporate edibles into their landscape and then reap the benefits and the other piece that I kept thinking about as you were talking about this and how it how it personally impacts you is the word pride because There is that feeling of abundance, but then there's also has to be this feeling of pride in that, hey, I did this. You know, I did this and I'm reaping the reward. I'm reaping the health benefits, the financial benefits, and the pleasure benefits of doing all that hard work. There was a payoff.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think the longer the payoff and the bigger the payoff can be, which is one thing that I I think food preserving helps that be, uh, yeah, the more I don't know, I guess the more you feel like the time and energy you're putting in, it becomes even more worth it, yeah, because the the fruits of your labor are are extended into more parts of the year.
0: Let's go through your vegetable and then fruit preserving. And this really is laid out in a sort of cookbook fashion. So I picked a handful of vegetables and then the fruits that you recommend and then your, your ideas around how to preserve them. So why don't we start with beans? <laughs> sure. Beans? You could, I think I, I give two
1: two options. You can lightly, I like the steam actually instead of blanch, but you can lightly steam them and then freeze them. Or you can actually also just freeze them raw. Certainly if you think you're going to use them sooner than later. Um, I've done both and I'm happy with both actually. I don't see that big of a difference. Um, So those are really easy. Um, I actually honestly don't tend to freeze a lot of beans because we just don't really eat them that much in the winter. Um, But I know that a lot of people end up with a lot of beans, and so freezing them is a great way. You know, a lot of people, dilly beans are actually really good. Some people will can dilly beans, but if canned regular beans are not very good. If you've ever had canned green beans, they're usually (laughs) pretty mushy. So the nice thing about freezing them is you kind of make sure that they don't turn to mush.
0: Okay. How about beets, and one of the things that I was really surprised to see in here is you say, "Leave the soil on the beets,
1: yeah, so I leave my beets in the garden as long as possible. I actually just harvested them uh, I, well, I usually harvest them somewhere around Thanksgiving, uh depending on what the weather is so i like you had not- mentioned earlier the garden can be a natural refrigerator in the fall and even in the winter, depending on where you live. So I let my garden store my beets and my carrots. So beets and carrots are pretty similar in the way that you store them. So I let them grow in the garden as long as possible. I always plant a big fall crop of both of those things. And I will usually harvest them. You want to harvest them before the ground freezes. Uh, So I harvest mine usually around Thanksgiving. And then I cut off the tops of the beets. I leave the soil on. I try to brush off as much as possible. And then I pack them into plastic bags, usually just plastic handled bags or any kind of plastic bag that I have laying around. And then I tuck them in the back of my fridge. And then I'll take out, whenever I need beets or carrots, I'll take out a bunch and I'll wash them as I use them. And this is because a lot of vegetables have a waxy protective cuticle on them that helps them store. And by if you were going to wash all your beets and carrots as soon as you harvested them, sometimes you start to wash off some of that natural protective layer. Um, and so in order to help them store longer, I just wash them as I go. So sometimes I'll just wash a whole bunch and then we'll eat them for the next few weeks. Sometimes I'll just wash however many I need for the recipe. But yeah, I just leave them in my fridge. We've had Beets and carrots store easily until next May, June. Actually, last summer I found a couple beets from the that got lost in the fridge that we had stored from the, the the previous winter. So that was July. I probably harvested them in November, and they were still fine. I could have used them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, they store for a very, very long time. And those are two of my most favorite things to store because we eat a lot of carrots. And we don't eat quite as many beets, but I have some good recipes I like to use roasted beets for. Um, and yeah, I never buy beets or carrots from the grocery store ever. We always just eat through our, through our own. Although actually, sometimes we eat through all our carrots and we do. there's a local farm that sells them um, at our food co-op. So sometimes we'll buy by April or May, we'll be out of our carrots, so we'll have to buy some carrots until our new cra- our summer crop is ready to be harvested. So yeah, those are both extremely easy.
0: Okay, how about celery? You say in your book, most garden grown celery is tougher than grocery store varieties, so it's best used for soups and stews. How do you preserve celery?
1: <laughs> yeah, so depending on where you live, but certainly in Wisconsin, the celery that we grow is, is usually yeah, a little bit more tough. So I just take the, the, each spear of celery and I just chop it up and then just put it in a jar and throw it in the freezer. So uh, we mostly use it. At, uh, actually, last night my husband came in and said, where is the celery because I need it for soup? Uh, and we kind of we had to dig through the freezer to try to find it. But in the past, I used to just skip. We don't really eat that much celery in our house, so I would just skip. If the if recipe said celery, I would just skip that ingredient. <laughs> <laughs> and so one day I went to the farmer's market and I saw someone, selling celery. And I thought, Oh, we can grow that here. I'll just grow my own. Um, so yeah, it's really easy. You can just chop it up and freeze it raw in a jar or in a plastic bag or plastic container, whatever, whatever container you want to use.
0: You know, do you grow lovage by any chance? I never have, actually. Do you have it in your garden? I do. I got it from the Ramsey County Garden Club plant sale, which is the oldest garden club in Minnesota. And I love to get plants from these garden club plant sales because you get to talk to the grower. And this one gentleman said, here, you can buy this. You won't be able to probably find it in too many nurseries around here, but it's in the celery family. And I remember when I was talking to Deborah Madison, she loves to cook with lovage. And it does Mm. have a very light celery flavor. So, in fact, when I do sensory tours through my garden, I'll often come to this lovage plant. And mine grows over six feet tall. It's very tall. So put it in the back of your garden and you might need to stake it. Um, And it will spread, so heads up. But it's really an interesting plant, and I'll always take a leaf off and then hand it to people and say, what do you think this is? And it blows their mind because they know that that smell. They know what celery smells like, but they're not expecting it to be in this massively tall plant. And then I think it's very easy to cook with and I do use it as a celery substitute. So there's something else you can add, Megan, to your twenty seventeen garden is try growing some yeah. Cabbage. Yeah, there you go.
1: I will. I always I like to try a couple of new things every year, so I'll put that on my list of things
0: to try. Yes, and hey, if you're in Minnesota next summer, you stop by and I'll give you a big section of it so you can just go start your own little lovage farm there. So, um, (laughs) you know, one thing I was so happy to see is that you have chard in your guide here. (laughs) Yeah. And I do,
1: I do have chard. And to be honest, I actually like kale more than I like chard. (gasps) Um, So chard is one of the vegetables (laughs) that I only grow sometimes. So I have some vegetables that are on like a two or three or four year rotation. And I will admit that chard is on there. Uh, I always grow kale, but I don't always grow chard, but they're both pretty similar you can you can freeze both raw um both of them you can just de take the stem out and and certainly chard the stem is much more tasty than the <laughs> than the stem of kale, so you could even freeze both of them together or freeze them separately. Cause I know sometimes when you cook them, you kind of cook the stem first and then the leaves, um, but you can freeze both of them, them raw. And I just pack them into Ziploc bags. I just pack as much as possible into a Ziploc bag and then shut it, throw it in the freezer. Um, and I certainly freeze a lot more kale than I do chard, but they're both very similar. Um, and then we'll use them in, Egg dishes and stir fries and basically anything you would use it fresh. I will often use, in any recipe that calls for cooked spinach, I will often use kale or chard instead, especially if I have it already frozen. Um, Because I like to eat my spinach fresh. I really don't like to cook it down because we like to eat salad. So I'll just use kale or chard instead of. Um, cooked spinach, and it tastes just as good, sometimes better, actually, because cooked spinach isn't really, I don't find it to be that appetizing.
0: (laughs) All right, note to self, substitute cooked spinach. I like that idea. How about garlic and garlic scapes?
1: So garlic scapes, if anybody has not grown garlic, it's such a great, it's so fun to grow easier if you're a northern gardener but certainly possible if you're a southern gardener but there's some extra things that you have to do that you can look up Um, but you plant garlic in the fall so I planted mine in early November and then it survives the winter in the garden kind of you can think about it similar to a tulip bulb or a daffodil bulb so survive the winter and then we'll start growing in the spring just like of the bulb flowers and then about sometime in June in Wisconsin it sends out a scape which is um, almost looks like a a stalk, a flower stalk and then it curls over and it has the little garlic flower. So a lot of people will say to cut them off because once a plant has flowers it often will put the energy into the flower. Whereas garlic, we really want the energy to go into the bulb, and so a lot of people will cut the scapes off. You may have seen them if you shop at your local farmer's market. Everybody all of a sudden has garlic scapes uh, in June, and so I harvest them and I make pesto out of them. Um, and I actually sometimes like it better than basil pesto. Really?
0: Um, and
1: I've had some basil. Yeah, I've had. Some, it's, I think it has a. It definitely has a more garlicky flavor. It kind of has a deeper slightly more complex flavor. And you can mix other things in. Sometimes I'll put some basil in there. Sometimes I'll put some cilantro in with it. I'll put some kale in with it just to take down the garlic flavor. I really like garlic. I don't mind that it's kind of... It's it's like a spicy pesto. Um, So I will make a lot of pesto in June, that's sometimes the beginning of my food preserving season, by making garlic scape pesto. So well, that's easy. You can also fr- freeze the garlic scapes as well if you like to cook with them.
0: And you make the pesto and you're freezing the pesto as well, right?
1: Yeah, I'm freezing the pesto again just in jars. Um, and then I'll also make basil pesto. And you can actually make pesto. My friend makes pesto. She always ma- has cilantro pesto, parsley pesto, like you had said, the carrot top pesto. So there's lots of different things. You can mix a bunch of herbs together. Um, You don't have to make just straight basil pesto or straight garlic skate pesto. You can mix lots of different things together and come up with your own recipe. Hmm. Um, But yeah, I'll make the pestos and I freeze them for use all year round.
0: Perfect. Okay, and then I was going to say, this garlic skate pesto is from Bjorn Bergman. Is he a friend or did you get it out of a cookbook? <laughs> yeah, he's a
1: friend of mine, and the first one. This is these are the friends. They're huge food preservers, and they make lots of different types of pesto. One of them being garlic scape pesto, and they're actually the ones that turned me onto it. When I had theirs, I thought, "Oh, I like this just as much as basil pesto, maybe even more." And I've also had some basil. Disease in my garden. And so I've had a couple of years where I actually lost a lot of basil to disease before I even was able to make that much pesto. And so now I, as kind of insurance policy to make sure I have enough pesto, I'll just make a bunch of garlic cake pesto just in case I have problems with my basil. Wow. Um, so, but so yeah, it's really easy. And I actually have, um, there's a recipe in the book. I actually have a blog post on my website. That is how to make garlic scape pesto with pictures and that recipe. So if folks want to look it up. You could probably just Google "create a vegetable gardener garlic scape pesto" and it should come up,
0: and awesome. you can
1: check it check out the process.
0: Awesome. Yes, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But it really looks wonderful. How about leeks and onions? I know that we are really. Uh, looking here at you, probably your favorite, right? Leeks, onions, garlic.
1: Yeah, leeks not as much. I would put leeks in the same category as chard. That I grow them not every year, but on a rotation every few years. Okay. But onions and garlic, I always grow. Um, onions, you want to make if you think you want to store them, you want to grow a storage variety. So, so I've had the best luck with just starting. I start my own seeds, so I just start my own onion seeds. And I buy storage varieties because I know I want to try to store them. Um, And then I harvest my onions. I cure them in my garage to kind of dry them out. Then I pack them into crates. I have some old flower bulb crates that I got from a local nursery. And then I put them in my basement. So I don't have a root cellar. I do have a basement that's on the cooler side. It's not finished, and so we don't really a lot of time heating it. Um, So I've I've had really good luck in this house with onion storage, but my last house was a new house, so I had a pretty warm basement. Still was able to pretty easily store onions. I don't do anything special. I just try to put them in the darkest and coolest part of my basement. So if you have, like, a dark closet or you have, like, an unfinished laundry room or somewhere that tends to be cool – and stays pretty dark, we've also covered our onions. it doesn't really matter this time of year, but when we start gaining light, we found that sometimes our and our basement warms up a little bit, the onions start to sprout, and so we've tried to cover them to kind of keep the light out so Certainly, when you 're storing food, you want to keep things in dark, just like er, you know when you store your even your dried herbs or really any food doesn't really like to be in direct sunlight, so I try to keep things in. Cool dark places as much as possible. Um, so yeah, onions they they store pretty much all all winter in the basement.
0: And now we're on to another winter crop that I always think about. And you said you're swimming in them is sweet potatoes.
1: Yeah, I haven't. I have. This is the first year I've really grown grown sweet potatoes successfully. I tried a few years ago. I didn't have much success this year. I recommitted myself and did some more reading and research and changed some of my techniques. And when I harvested them this past fall, I had 115 sweet potatoes. Oh my (laughs) So that's a lot of sweet potatoes. And I really like sweet potatoes. So we'll see how much we like them if we can eat 115. I've given away a few to my sister and my mother-in-law. But yeah, they store... Pretty easily. They like to be warmer. And so my basement gets pretty cold when it gets cold, really cold here in Wisconsin. So right now I have them in crates in my office uh, because it's a little bit warmer. Um, I'm I'm not sure what, if I'm going to put them down the basement because they don't like to be, I believe it was like they don't like to be below 40 degrees or maybe 45 degrees. I think the ideal temperature was around 50 to 55, which is pretty warm for you know, depending on the temperature of your house, but sometimes my basement gets into the 40s. It's pretty chilly down there. Uh, so, so yeah. But they, you don't want to store them in the fridge. They don't like to be cold. Um, but yeah, I just have them in crates in a warmer part of my house, and I actually put a towel over the, a couple towels over them to try to keep the light out because my office is pretty sunny. Uh, but they're pretty easy to grow once you get the hang of them, um, and. They store really well, and there's tons of recipes featuring sweet potatoes. Don't think that sweet potatoes are just for Thanksgiving with like that really sweet marshmallow dish, which is actually I don't even like that dish. I like sweet potatoes for lots of savory dishes, and there's so many good sweet potato recipes out there, sweet potato burritos and sweet potato tacos and sweet potato soup just a lot a lot of really really great recipes. So it's fun to experiment. So we'll be eating a lot of sweet potatoes this winter.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wow. And how about tomatoes? We've touched on that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So tomatoes, my favorite way to freeze them, and I actually do have a blog post about this as well with a video, I believe, a quick little video. Um, I, I just chop them up, put them in a pan and cook them down on the stove. I don't take the skins off. I don't take the seeds out. I think, you know, when you think about commercial tomato sauce, we've been kind of trained to think it's got to be really, really silky smooth. Yes. But I think it's a waste of time to try to get the seeds and the skins out. So over time, I just realized, I don't really care. I'm just going to eat those. I'm just going to eat them as part of the tomatoes. So I just cook them down. I cook a lot of, I just try to cook as much of the water off as possible and then, when I get it down to a consistency I like, I just pack them into old yogurt containers, the bigger yogurt sh- containers. This is one that I don't really freeze in glass because I don't, sometimes I worry that there's still too much liquid and it might crack. And so I just save yogurt containers. I put the tomatoes in there and I really use it for anything, any recipe that calls for chopped canned tomatoes, whole canned tomatoes, diced canned tomatoes. I just defrost the yogurt container and dump it in the recipe. And then I'll also use it to make tomato sauce. So I'll put some onions and garlic in a pan, put in uh, one or two yogurt containers of frozen tomatoes, and then add some oregano or some other um, other herbs. So they're really versatile, and you can use them for, for lots of different recipes. So I haven't bought a canned tomato in years and years and years because I just use my own little yogurt containers. And honestly, I haven't really noticed the difference. Uh, between the store-bought ones and mine, actually, mine tastes better. Wow, <laughs> and well, yours will too because our tomatoes are just probably sweeter than the commercial varieties.
0: I love that you're very explicit about the fact that you can throw these into anything that calls for all those different types of tomato varieties, which makes it so versatile.
1: Yeah, it really does, and and that's why I like to kind of just do it in a the most simple state, so then I can use it for whatever I need to use it for. If I want to make it in the sauce, or I want to put it in soup, or I want to cook it. I mean, you could even cook it down for pizza sauce later if you didn't have time to do that in the summer. So lots of different options.
0: That's fantastic. Winter squash.
1: Oh, this is one of my favorite ones. So this is one of the ones I don't grow, like we talked about a little bit. You don't have to preserve, or you don't have to grow everything you preserve. I don't have enough room to grow 20 pounds of blueberries, so I just go pick the blueberries. <laughs> I usually don't grow winter squash because it takes up a lot of room. Um, and so I just go to the farmer's market in September, October, and everybody has winter squash. And I just buy, actually this time, a lot of times I'll bike to the farmer's market, but the, when I go for winter squash, I'll just take my car, I'll take a bunch of crates. I go around the farmer's market, and I buy a whole bunch of, I usually buy butternut, because I find it stores the best. But there are also some other less well-known varieties that store very well. I'll buy acorn, but I found that acorn doesn't store as long as butternut, so we'll eat the acorn first. Okay. Um, But yeah, I usually buy, I think, 12 butternut squash, and then I just put them in crates in my basement. I look for ones that don't have nicks on them as much as possible, so I look for ones that aren't really beat up that their skin's pretty intact. And then I'll put them in crates, put them in my basement, and we eat butternut squash all winter long. My husband just used two last night for, to make a butternut squash soup for dinner. So, um, again, that's one thing that can be kind of expensive in the grocery store, especially if you shop for organic produce in the winter. So really, really easy to store, and you don't have to grow it. You can just go buy them at the farmer's market for sometimes they're only a dollar or two. Or a butternut squash so it's a great you can get some great deals in the fall.
0: Oh, you're always thinking, I love that. Now tell us about fruit storage. You have three categories for fruit storage. The first is the berries. You call them blueberries, cranberries, raspberries, strawberries, and you also include rhubarb in this category. Yeah,
1: so those are all things that really don't require a lot of processing. So the strawberries I usually take off the little strawberry leaves, the caps. Uh, but the rest of them can pretty much just be frozen raw. Um Blueberries are so dry that, you know, and it depends whether you're washing them first or not. So sometimes my husband always teases me because when things come out of my own garden, I don't always wash them. <laughs> They're like, they just came out of the yard. They're not dirty. <laughs> um So it depends. If you're washing things, then you'll probably want to spread them out on a cookie sheet put them in the freezer and at least partially freeze them so they don't stick together into a big block. Um, And then once they're frozen or even just partially frozen, then you can remove them into your container. So they're more loosely frozen so you can get them out. I have made that mistake before and ended up with like a huge block of cherries that I had to try to chisel oh, apart when I wanted some. So it's it's best to try to have things loose so you can just grab however many you want. Yes. So those are really easy. I often freeze those in either gallon Ziploc bags or quartz Ziploc bags depending on how much I use at a time. Um I use a lot of blueberries for smoothies, so I'll just put them in big gallon bags and then um and then just I which we didn't talk about I have a chest freezer in my basement. So, chest freezer is, if you're going to do a lot of freezing, I really recommend purchasing a chest freezer, uh, because it doesn't have that natural defrost cycle that our upstairs, that our kitchen freezers have. Sometimes you'll notice that things get kind of soft. Like if you have ice cream in your freezer, sometimes you pull it out and it'll be kind of soft. That's because the freezer has a natural defrost cycle. And, but when you get a chest freezer, it doesn't have that. It stays at a very constant zero degrees, I believe. Um, so, you, you have, so the food tends to degrade less over time. And so what I'll do is keep the majority of things in the basement freezer. And then I'll just move up a bag at a time into my upstairs freezer. Cause I do notice that they start to get a little bit more freezer burnt and then they just, yeah, they're just not as, don't look as good as they do when they're in the basement freezer. So, um, so I'll just, blueberries or raspberries, I'll just freeze them in sometimes just bigger bags because I use them pretty quickly, and then I'll just move them upstairs when I I finish a bag. I'll just go and get a new one and bring it upstairs.
0: Okay. And then how about apples, peaches, pears, and plums? You lump those together.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and some of those, it depends how you want to use them. So I actually froze peaches this year, and all I did was take out the pit and then I just sliced them because I just wanted to use them for smoothies. Sometimes you can make freezer jam. You can if you like to use jam but you don't really want to can. Um and, and sometimes if you don't want to use as much sugar, you don't want to use the pectin, you can make you can cook down some of that fruit and make it into sauces or jams if you like to use it for pancakes or waffles. Again, it kinda of goes back to what do you eat on a regular basis if you like to make breakfast where you have Pancakes or waffles, or you like to put some fruit, fruit sauce in your oatmeal in the morning. You can cook down a lot of those fruits and freeze them as sauces or jams. Um, and then, you know, peaches and apples, it really kind of same thing. You can, you can freeze them with the skin on. Sometimes my mother in law sometimes would take the apple skins off because she wanted to use them in pies. So, I think a lot of it depends on what your end result, like how you're going to use it. If you're just going to use peaches in a smoothie, it probably doesn't matter. You could free, you could just cut them in half if you wanted to and just take out the pit. Um, but you want to make sure that you, you're, you're... It's definitely easier to get off the leaves or get, take out the pit, or if you want to take off the skin. All those things are easier to do before you end up freezing them. So just prepare them in... In the way that makes them the easiest to use when you're when you're ready to use them
0: would be my suggestion. Okay, and then how about cherries? You separate this from the other fruits that you preserve. Well, cherries are
1: difficult because you you really have to pit them, Um, and pitting takes a lot of work. We had a bumper. We had an amazing cherry year here in Madison two years ago. So much so that like people were not even. Couldn't even pick all the cherries that they had, and now these are most people in Madison grow sour cherries. Um, and so my friend and I went around, and she like she'll knock on people's doors and ask if she can pick their cherries, and most people will say, "Oh yes, please," because I mean people had just tens of thousands on oh, their trees. Gosh. So we went and we picked tons of cherries, and I pitted a lot of them. And, but I got tired of pitting, and so then I was like, I'm just going to freeze the rest of the pits in them, and I'll deal with it later. And that was not a good idea because it's really hard to deal with them later if they still have pits in them. And I actually still have a, a couple bags in the freezer, and I was trying to convince my friend that they should take them and just try to figure out how to get the pits out. Um, so so cherries, are you definitely want to get the pits out. Um, I have frozen that, again, I kind of use them for smoothies. I actually have a couple recipes I like that have cherries in them. And so what I did, they kind of turn to mush by the time you get all the pits out. Um, And so I actually have packed them in uh, ice cube trays. So it's almost like a a cherry mash. And I just kind of stick it in the ice cube trays and freeze it and then crack the ice cubes into Ziploc bags. And then you could use them for smoothies, you could use them for sauce, you could use them for baked goods if you wanted to. Oh, I see. Um, if you wanted if you wanted them to be more loose, you could probably try to spread them out on a cookie sheet. If you thought you wanted to have them more be like individual cherries, say if you wanted to use them for scones or baking, you might want them to be a little bit looser so you could just try to spread them out and freeze them.
0: Okay. So I was going to ask you and then I almost forgot How do you prepare your squash, your winter squash? Because this is something that people seem to have endless ways to cook it. Do you have an easy way that you like to cook your winter squash?
1: Well, I definitely like soup. My husband made a a curried butternut squash apple soup last night, actually, for dinner. And so that's pretty easy and always good. Um, We've used it. I mean, I've made butternut squash tacos. Um, we, what else? There's a roasted pumpkin salad. Well, it's, it's called roasted pumpkin salad, but a lot of times when there's a a recipe that has pumpkin, I'll just use butternut squash instead. Um, so that's like, it's a wild rice. It's wild rice. And then you bake, you roast the squash in cubes and then you make this like cilantro tahini, Third, cilantro sunflower seed sauce, which is really good. That's actually one of our all-time favorite dishes um, that we'll bring sometimes to potlucks and holidays. And then, what? How else do we like it? There's a. Oh, well, actually, we we didn't do this, but we were looking this past Thanksgiving. Um, we were looking at on actually the Love and Lemons website, a cooking blog. She had a butternut squash stuffed pasta shells in a cream sauce. It looked really good. So we kind of put it – we didn't make it, but we were put on our list for something to make later. So um, one of the things that I lo- – I get a lot of ideas from cooking blogs, and I'll, and many of them now you can just search by ingredient. And so I'll just bring up all the butternut squash recipes, and I'll um, just kind of look through them and see what strikes my fancy as far as a butternut squash recipe. I really love uh, cookie and cake is one of my all-time favorite cooking blogs. I I've, I've never had a recipe off of her blog that I did not like,
0: mm. which
1: is pretty amazing. I cannot say that for any other cooking blog. Wow. <laughs> Cookie and Kate. So That's probably one of my favorites.
0: Cookie and cake. Okay. Now let me ask you this. When you're cooking your winter squash, do you put it in the oven whole and then just prick the outside with a fork? Do you cut it in half and put it in a pan of water? How do you get that thing cooked?
1: <laughs> well, it depends on the recipe. Sometimes we,
0: uh, I'll take off the skin
1: with a vegetable peeler, cube it, and then sometimes we're roasting it for a recipe. So then we'll just put the, you know, put some olive oil and salt and pepper on the cubes and then roast them in the oven. Um, when we make soup, sometimes we'll just do it with the cubes. Sometimes we'll just, slice the squash in half, take out the seeds, and then I usually put them in like a casserole dish and then put some water in the bottom and flip them skin side down so it kind of steams them. Um, so, yeah, I think it just depends on the recipe. That's That dictates how I I cook it.
0: Well, Megan, cooking with frozen food isn't always straightforward for people. It's a bit of a trial and error because people either like it or they don't. So I'm very curious what your tips are for how to use the frozen preserves successfully.
1: Yeah, I think one of the easiest things to do with frozen food, really, is to overcook it. So it's important to remember that it's, it's already either potentially partially cooked if you steamed it or blanched it before you froze it. Um, or even the freezing process kind of breaks down the cells of the vegetable. So even when you thaw it, it's not, doesn't feel like it doesn't have the texture of, a, so say broccoli, it doesn't have the texture of a fresh broccoli head. It almost feels like it was already cooked or, you know, the freezing process kind of breaks things down. So, One thing I've learned over the years is it's really easy to overcook it. So you have to be careful that you're not adding it to a recipe at the same time you would if it was raw. So using broccoli as an example. Raw broccoli is going to take some time to cook if you're adding it to a pan or you're adding it wherever. Um, And so you want to make sure that you're adding it more towards the end so you're not overcooking it. The other suggestion is when you're processing it if it's something that you're not freezing raw, like broccoli, where you need to steam it a little bit or blanch it before you freeze it, be really careful not to overcook it when you're getting it ready to preserve it, to freeze it. So a couple of years ago, my husband did a, froze a bunch of broccoli, and he overcooked it all. And so when we used it, it was more likely to be really mushy. It wasn't very good. And so when I did it last year, I realized I need to be really careful so that it's just lightly steamed, and it turned out a lot better. Uh, And then I'm pretty mindful about when I add it to a recipe. Certainly if I'm doing some kind of stir-fry or I'm cooking something in a pan, um, I try to add it towards the end. If you're putting it in a soup where everything kind of gets cooked pretty soft, it's not going to matter as much. Um, or a casserole or something that you're baking it usually doesn't matter as much either because things get pretty cooked through. Um, but, yeah, and you can you could defrost things before you use them in a recipe, but sometimes I just don't do that, and I just take it right from the freezer. Um, I will say, it's funny, when I preserve my own food, I... <sighs> It doesn't feel the same as buying frozen vegetables from the grocery store. I never buy frozen vegetables from the grocery store, but but I do use a lot of my own frozen vegetables. So it's kind of funny in that way, but it feels different for some reason because I know where it came from. I know that it came from my garden and I know that, it, that I harvested it at the peak of flavor and I took care in preserving it. Um, it feels like I'm cooking with produce from my own garden and, and it doesn't feel as much like cooking with frozen food, which is kind of funny, but yeah, that's how, that's how it kind of feels.
0: Well, and maybe there's something to that, whether it's in the water content or maybe even just the variety, because of course you're picking probably more flavorful varieties than you might find in the grocery store.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably true because even if you think about some of the things that you buy fresh from the grocery store, often just don't have the taste of what you have, what things that you're growing in your, your own garden. But I mm-hmm. think part of that is a lot of the commercial varieties are bred for for characteristics other than taste. Yeah. So they're bred for uniformity or they're bred for um, being able to be transported or maybe some of the frozen food. Probably uniformity is pretty big for frozen food because mm-hmm. you want everything to be kind of the same so that they can freeze it easily. So, yeah, and in our home garden, we're often growing, we don't care about those things as much, and we're growing things for taste, Yeah, sometimes more than anything else.
0: Yeah, and not looking for something that's more bland. We're looking for things with more flavor. And I had this wonderful conversation with Joel Karsten, the author of Straw Bale Gardens, and also Deborah Madison, the author of Vegetable Literacy, had remarked to me how Disheartening it can be to be standing in the produce section of a grocery store and seeing how critical people can be of fruits and vegetables when they're at the grocery store because they're looking for perfection. And the difference is is if you're growing it in the garden and I have vivid memories of doing this with my grandmother. You wouldn't look at a strawberry with a blemish on it and say, oh, well, we're going to throw that out. No, you just cut that part off and you'd keep using it. And you, again, it's that pride element in growing your own food that it doesn't have to be perfect But it does have to be good. It does have to taste good. And so there's just that missing element, that pride element when you're shopping in the grocery store. Because there's no pride in buying a bag of frozen blueberries (laughs) from the grocery store in the same way (laughs) that there is of, hey, I picked 25 pounds of blueberries for my smoothies and then I preserved them all. There's just that little missing element there.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I also every time I use those blueberries, I I flash back to the day I went actually went picking in the evening in, the, in a, a a beautiful July evening into the country with one of my friends. We chatted the whole time. She helped me pick some of my blueberries and and so when I use those blueberries, I often flash onto that evening. And it was such a beautiful, perfect summer evening. Mm-hmm. And that's Yeah, that's like part of that little extra joy and pleasure that you get from even if you don't grow it yourself, but you went and picked it yourself in this beautiful location with a friend. And I, I, it's like I get a little snippet of that every time I, every time I take a cup and put it in my smoothie, I just think about that scene. Yeah. And you don't get that when you buy a bag of blueberries from the grocery store, like you said. Unless you right, got your exactly. blueberries
0: for like uh, free or something, if there was some BOGO deal, then you might think about right. it a little differently. But for the most part, it's not conjuring yeah. anything other than, you know, the meal that you're about to make. Well, you know, right. I have to say you have a tremendous call to action at the end of your book. I I just loved it. And I thought, to me, it really felt so local. It felt like I was sitting in a class In my neighborhood, in lovely Maple Grove, the ending of your book feels so intimate because you are challenging your students with something that I think so many people would never dare to do, and you're doing it. And you say, well, I'm not going to say what the challenge is. I'm going to let you tell us. So tell us about it and how (laughs) it has transformed not only preserving for you, but also for your students. I loved it.
1: Well, I often give this challenge. I give it in the book, and I also teach a lot of classes and speak at conferences around my region. So I'll often give it the challenge at the end is to grow, to pick one thing and grow everything that you may need of that thing for a whole year. So, for example, and I often say garlic is an easy one to start with. So it's pretty easy to grow plant garlic, especially if you live in a northern climate, and and depending on how much you use, you could potentially grow all that you need so that you never have to buy any garlic from a different source. Pesto would also be a very easy one if you find yourself buying pesto, you could easily grow enough basil to make pesto to make enough pesto for the whole year so that you never buy buy anything any from the grocery store and it's just a challenge of self-sufficiency and I and I by no means do I grow everything that I eat and I actually think that when when you start growing your own food you appreciate vegetables and all the hard work that goes into them and so you're often more likely to go to the farmer's market I still go to the farmer's market in my town, because I love to support farmers and I love to see what people are growing, and I don't, gr- I can't grow everything that I eat. And so I don't know that it's realistic for most of us to think that we're going to be able to grow and preserve everything that we need, but it is an interesting feeling to be self-sufficient in one or more vegetables. There are some things that I never buy from anybody else and I never buy from the grocery store. And that is, it's just kind of a special feeling to know that you can rely on yourself and your own garden for at least a small portion of your food needs. Uh, And I think that's pretty unique in, in nowadays where, where many of us and I didn't know until I started gardening where food came from or what season, I didn't even know there were seasons of food until I was a gardener. So I think in a time when certainly a lot of Americans are very disconnected from where food comes from to be able to produce your own food and even produce some of your own food that everything you eat comes from your own garden in a certain in certain categories is yeah it's a pretty it's a pretty great accomplishment and it's a very special feeling for sure so that's my challenge to to gardeners that I come across so certainly gardeners or gardeners and listeners of your show, to, to, for 2017, try to pick one or if you already do it, maybe try to add a few more things to your list where you grow everything that you might need in a cert- some certain vegetable categories and, and give yourself that challenge when you're planting your garden and planting in the spring and preserving in the summer.
0: Well, I absolutely loved it, and I love the way you phrased it in the book at the very end. You have the reader of the book, you leave a space for them to write their own comment here, but you give them the sentence starter and you say, I am going to attempt the amazing feat of providing my household with all of our, and then there's a blank, whether it's beets or oregano or basil, what have you, this year. I loved that. That's a wonderful, wonderful way to end your book. Now, I can't close the show without having you highlight some of your recipes because you have some pretty tremendous recipes in the book and on your website. And I'm wondering if you could pick out one or two and then virtually cook them with us. Pretend we're standing there beside you and let's cook them together.
1: (laughs) Sure. That's a great idea. So One of my – I know that on on the kale page, one of my all-time favorite recipes, probably the one that we cook the most, is one that's called Joyous Kale. And I originally learned it at a farm that I worked on and have since over time kind of adapted it to um, almost a different kind of recipe. But it's a kale recipe um, with a tahini sauce, and it's so good, especially if you don't like kale. I have served this dish to many different people that say they don't like kale and they like this dish. So um that dish, like many dishes that I cook, most dishes, I start with some onions and garlic in the pan. So first I'll go down the basement. If I usually have a bowl in our kitchen of some garlic and onions, but if I don't have any, I'll go down to the basement, and get some of my storage onions and garlic, put, cook them up in a pan, saute them in a pan. I'll also get some couple bag quart bags of frozen kale or if I have it fresh for my garden certainly that's my first choice but let's say it's winter and I'm cooking it
0: what do you saute your onions and garlic with usually olive oil
1: uh, unless I have sometimes I'll do coconut oil but not for this recipe depends okay. on the recipe but usually I'll in some olive oil and then at the while that's kind of sauteing I'll make the sauce for the kale so it's um, olive oil, some tamari or soy sauce, tahini, and lemon juice mixed together. Um, and I'm trying to think if I have it's, – it's in – there's the recipe – there's a link to the recipe in the book. I don't have a blog post about it. Um But we can – but I do have it on my website, so I can send you the link. Um And then I also toast some – sesame seeds usually to go on top and then if you I don't I'm a vegetarian so I don't eat meat so sometimes I'll saute up some uh, some tofu to put in it so I usually do that in, an, in another pan with some olive oil I'll cut it into triangles or rectangles or squares whatever shape I want so and try to crisp it up in some olive oil but if you eat chicken you could do a chicken breast or whatever whatever meat if you like to have meat with dinner, Um, And then if I I pick the kale from my garden, then I'll have to kind of rinse it off because I have a lot of insects usually on my kale. So I'll rinse it off and then take off the stems and kind of chop it into bite-sized pieces. If I'm using kale I froze, I already did that before I preserved it. So the great thing is that I can just... I actually just use it frozen. I don't defrost it. So once I get the onions and garlic nice and sauteed. Then I'll add the kale, sometimes just frozen, uh, and let it cook a bit. And then I'll add the sauce that I made up, the the tahini sauce, and kind of mix it all in. Um, And then I, I also forgot, I usually make rice on the side, some brown rice. So I'll have the rice, and then we have... The, so a pot with some rice, a little pan with some tofu, and a little pan with some toasted sesame seeds, and then the pot with the kale and the sauce and the onions and garlic, and then we'll kind of put a little put a little rice in a bowl, put some of the kale, put some tofu on top, and put the roasted toasted sesame seeds on top.
0: Wow. That sounds great.
1: It's a really great recipe. It's one of our favorites. And you can add different things. Sometimes in the summer, I'll add in tomatoes. I've added in parsnips. You could add in some sweet potatoes or, or butternut squash. So really, you, it's, a, it's a base recipe that you can build upon and add other things
0: if you want to. Mm, sounds delicious. Any other last-minute recipes you want to share with us?
1: Well, I'll, since I talked about smoothies a couple of times, I'll share my favorite smoothie recipe, which I kind of adapted or made up. I don't know where it came from anymore. I think it's my own now. Um, My favorite smoothie, When I would actually eat this every single day, but I try to make myself have a little bit more diversity in my smoothies, (laughs) but I usually have a cup of blueberries, a half a cup of raspberries, um, a cup of almond milk, um, and then a handful of spinach. So most of the year, I can get some spinach from my garden. Sometimes I freeze spinach so that I can have it for my smoothie. So either I get some a handful of frozen spinach or I go out into my garden and get some spinach. Throw that in. Um, sometimes I add, like, a tablespoon of flack, ground flaxseed. Yes. And then I blend that all up. And then right at the end, I add maybe two tablespoons of cacao nibs. What? Um cacao so the chocolate but it's not chocolate oh yeah chocolate so you might have had cacao so it's not cocoa it's cacao it's like raw cacao so you can get it in little nibs and so they don't really it's like a really bitter it tastes like a really bitter chocolate without the sugar okay um but i like i add a little bit into my smoothie i love bitter i well i love chocolate Um, so it's like, you know, you don't, it's not having chocolate for breakfast, but it actually supposedly, um, cacao is really good for you. So, and it adds like a little bit of crunch to your smoothie. Um, so that's my favorite, my favorite smoothie recipe. And I think I actually have a link for, for that on my website. So I can send that to you if people want to try it out and let me know what they think. But it's not real sweet. I don't like really sweet smoothies. So it's more of like a savory, almost a savory smoothie instead of
0: really sweet. Wow. Well, I love that. I think it sounds fantastic. I'm going to give it a try. Now, you have a few upcoming events that you wanted to share with us, one of which is you have a new book coming out.
1: I do. I'm really excited. It's a um, it's a garden planning workbook. So helping people. So the the most successful gardeners I know are people who give some thought to their garden before the season starts. They don't wait until the first sunny day and then rush out to their garden and start planting things. They're prepared for when the season starts. And I'm also in, I'm a minimalist and I like things to be simple. So it's not this big, complicated, not, it's not creating this get big, complicated plan. It's some of the things that we talked about today, like thinking strategically about your garden, looking at your lifestyle and your eating habits, understanding, the different vegetables and how much food they produce, how long you can harvest, how long they take to grow so that you can make some smart decisions about what you want to grow this season. Um, and then I help you figure out, uh, you know, different, I make variety suggestions and just, we kind of, it walks you through the process of planning your garden for a successful season, step-by-step, step, but kind of in a simple, fun way. And, even more so than super easy food preserving there's going to be worksheets that you can fill out and so it's really coming up with a personalized plan so it's not me telling you what you should grow in your garden it's me helping you figure out what you want to grow in your garden and how to plan for that um, and so it's very very personal um, I'm really excited about it right now that's getting at graphics designers getting designed so it's going to be really pretty I actually want it I think I'm a big cook and I think cookbooks and cooking blogs are very beautiful, um, and I think there's some room in the, in the gardening book industry to have vegetable, beautiful books about vegetable gardening that are also instructive. So it's not a coffee table book. It's a book that you're going to use, but I also want it to be really beautiful. So it'll be a lot of pretty photographs, and, uh, and the design will be really beautiful as well.
0: I'm looking forward to it. That is a really great point, though. We can learn a little bit from the cookbook industry. Yeah.
1: their Aesthetics is very important in cooking and certainly in the cooking blogs. And um, I'm always inspired by the beautiful pictures that they take and and just the often their design design of their books and blogs is very inspiring to me.
0: Speaking of upcoming events, you also have a membership site that is only open occasionally throughout the year. And in between time, people have to be on a waiting list. So tell us a little bit about your membership sites.
1: Yeah, I have I run an online gardening club. It's called the Flavorful Life Garden Club. And I feel like some of what we talked about today is kind of upping Upping your gardening game, upping your food-preserving game, um, getting more out of your garden. And so it's in the gardening club, that's what we focus on, is really trying to... One of the things we talk about is like growing and eating the best food of your life every season. Uh, and so we've it's a lot about education. It's also a lot about community. Each season, we have a master class. So I shoot... I shoot the videos in my garden and then sometimes in the winter in my house. Um, but I show a lot. So a lot of things are happening in my garden. I show you how to do things. Um, every season we have a master class where, so in winter it'll be how to plan your garden. Often we'll then we'll have a community challenge. We've done a seed starting challenge. that just a quick like seven-day challenge to help everybody get, everybody who wanted to get their seed starting operations up and going so they could start seeds. Um, and then we share recipes. We actually choose a different recipe every few weeks and whoever wants to cooks it and then post a picture and gives their review. Um, and then you get any, any ebook, you know, I have a lot of eBooks and different publications. So you all of those are anything that I create is a part of your membership. Um, and then we have a private Facebook group where people get to know each other and post pictures and ask questions and offer support so it's a, it's a really fun, fun group, and it's people actually from all over the world. We have some people from different countries, so it's really fascinating to see uh, how people garden in different parts of the world. We actually have someone that is from Saudi Arabia, and so we get to see, how, how how do you have a garden in Saudi Arabia? We get to see pictures, and she films little videos periodically so that we can see what's going on in her garden. So it's a lot of fun. Um, and people can find out about it on my website, uh, creativevegetablegardener.com. And then there's a, at the top in the menu, it's that there's a menu item that says the club. So you can read all about it. And yeah, certain times of the year, I open up registration for a week or 10 days. And then wh- whoever wants to join can join. So I love it's it. a lot of fun. And it's a, it. it's a great way to build your skills as a gardener slowly, you know, like throughout the year. It, you can't just take one class and learn how to be a gardener. It happens step by step, skill by skill over time. And that's why I created the gardening club because that's what we do. We learn together and we, we constantly become better gardeners over time.
0: Mm, wonderful. How do people get a hold of you?
1: I have a website and then part of that is my blog. Um, I, you can sign up for our email list there. I send out an email. I usually write a new blog post a week, which is all about whatever's going on at that particular time of the year. Um, And I send that out usually every Sunday. So you can join my email list and you'll get uh, an email every Sunday. If you live in the Midwest, I'll be... Uh I travel around and speak at different Master Gardener conferences. In Wisconsin, we have the Wisconsin Garden Expo. Um, if you live in the Madison area, I teach a lot of classes. So you might be able to catch up with me in person, but if not, you can definitely catch up on me with me online. Um, on my website is links to my Facebook page, and I post on Instagram, uh, and also have, have a Pinterest account as well. So you can, depending on what social media you like, you can hopefully find me there.
0: Well, that is tremendous. And I know, Megan, that you are giving away a copy of this book, Super Easy Food Preserving, to a lucky listener. And then you've also generously offered to give away a copy of your new book that's coming out. So those are tremendous prizes for people listening to the show.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to do it. And I'm really excited about about both books and I've I've heard from lots of people that have used both of them or let's say I haven't heard from anybody that uses a new one since it's not out yet but hopefully <laughs> I'll hear from lots of people that use the new one to help them plan their gardens but certainly a food preserving one I've heard from lots of people that they they tried lots of different techniques new techniques new to them techniques for food preserving so um, I always love to hear from folks so if you have any food preserving tips you want to share feel free to come on over to my website or my facebook page and we're always chatting about gardening all year round all times of the year every
0: day all right. That sounds fantastic. Well, and it's always gratifying to hear from people who've had a chance to review your work and love it. So that's wonderful. Okay. <laughs> well, well, this great was... Great chatting with you. Oh, it was so fun. This was really, really informative. This helped me a lot too. So as, as you were talking, I was taking little notes for myself on things I want to do. And I really liked your tip on just, you know, using the farmer's market, utilizing that, maximizing the fact that we've got these in our communities.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, I, I would love to see more people doing just even just a little bit of food preserving because um, I think it is really fun to, to just yeah when you're cooking meals in the winter to just like go shopping in your in your own basement and your own freezer is, it's a pretty cool feeling. So yeah. I'm hopefully I can encourage more people so that they can experience that as well. Mm.
0: I think it's going to be great. Well, (laughs) Megan, I want to thank you for your lovely amount of information today. This was tremendous. I know that listeners are going to completely benefit from it, and I hope they check out your book. So thank you for spending this time with us today.
1: Thanks for having me. And like I said, it's one of my most favorite things to do is talking about gardening. So I appreciate talking about it with you and and your listeners. So thanks for having me.
0: Uh, The pleasure was ours, I assure you. Well, that's it for the show today, you guys. I want to thank Megan Kane, the author of Super Easy Food Preserving: Quick Techniques for Fresh, Fridge, and Freezer Storage. That's a lot of Fs in there, Megan. And also her brand new, brand spankin' new, her Smart Start Garden Planner: Your Step-by-Step Guide. To a successful season. Now's the time to get that. And Megan, I want to thank you in advance for being my personal vegetable garden coach. All right, you guys, I called dibs first. But don't let that stop you from going to Megan's website and checking out all of her great resources, including the two books I've mentioned. In addition, she's got this great book called Super Easy Seed Starting. And I know once you're over there, you're going to find a ton of other great things that Megan's doing. And don't forget that she's offered to give away to a lucky listener a copy of both Super Easy Food Preserving and the brand new Smart Start Garden Planner. But in order to win that, you need to get in the Still Growing Podcast group. So don't forget, you've got to head on over to Facebook the next time you're there, which should be in about five minutes, right? Because we're all on our devices so much. I'm just kidding. But anyway, the next time you're at Facebook, go into the search bar and type in still growing podcast group, and then our group will pop right up. And then you can join the group and hang out with guests of the show like Megan Kane, like Joel Karsten of Straw Bale Gardens, Pam Pennick of the Water Saving Garden, Peggy Ann Montgomery of American Beauty Native Plants, and on and on and on. And you can interact with those guests and other listeners of the show, share your garden stories, share your challenges. Everybody's in there to help you become a better gardener, to help you and your garden grow. And if you're interested in being part of my listener advisory board, the group of folks that I'm going to be connecting with on a weekly basis to get feedback for the show and ideas for upcoming guests and so forth, It's your chance to see what goes on behind the scenes producing the Still Growing Podcast. So if you want to have a say and you want to influence a little bit some of the things that happen on the show, that's the place to do it. So I hope to see you in the Still Growing Podcast group this week. Well, I want to make sure that I thank my team at Podfly Productions for helping me put the show together. David Myers, my editor, my copywriter, Ayn Kadina, and my project manager, David Gregerson. Just a reminder that I'll have all of the generous information that Megan shared on the show today in the show notes over at my website, sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And that website is the home of the Still Growing podcast. And you'll find an archive of all of the episodes at sixfootmama.com. Well, you guys, before I close the show, I just want to share with you that I talked to my mom today and she reminded me that Daylight Savings is coming up on Sunday, March 12th. So think about it. We're getting closer. We're going to be back in the garden in no time. I hope you have a little sunshine in your week. Have a great week, everyone. Still growing with Jennifer.